0: week we peak early by talking to maxine peak star of fanny lie delivered and we have a lovely chat with one of the five bloods delroy lindo plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that has become obsessed with cameo obsessed now if anyone can help us throw together ooh, 400 quid or so so we can get wesley snipes to record this intro next week that would be much appreciated. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Stewart, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, which this week is brought to you once again, yes, in lockdown, and this time because it's the hottest day of the year in the UK, I have my windows open in my small office here. Otherwise, you would literally hear me melt. You could hear the sweat sizzle onto the microphone. So if you do hear some background noise this week, I apologise. But anyway, don't worry people, I am wearing pants, uh, which will be music to the ears of my three colleagues of such lethal cunning geek queen, Helen O'Hara.
1: Hello, and thank goodness.
0: <laughs> I mean, you all saw it. I stood up like two minutes ago as well. You saw that I was wearing pants.
1: Yeah. and, and In fairness, well- <laughs> we know you're
0: wearing shorts. We don't know
2: that you're not Commando.
1: <laughs> oh, I've trained myself after all these years to look away as soon as you stand up, just in case. <laughs>
2: We're
0: also joined by the man I have just recently anointed Nerd Emperor James Dyer.
2: Excellent. Now, <laughs> Hello.
1: He can't be an emperor. We've discussed this. This is not. Why is, this is not okay? No, you're putting him. You're making him your boss.
2: No, emperor's good. I don't know. Well, Chris is Chris is outside the chain of command, isn't he? He's like a rogue entity. He is. Uh, he's disavowed. Yes, I am. I'm excommunicado. <laughs> uh, but this is better. This is better because I, I'm. I, I quite like being a Nerd Emperor. On the Pilot TV podcast, oh, I am now. The Axeman, after having been soundly ridiculed last week for admitting that I bought a guitar and become one of those lockdown guitar twats. Hence my new squad cast username, Belen Sebastian, which is the name of my band.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, we've got to do a jamming session sometime
2: over soon, you and I.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm busy that night. What a shame. Oh,
2: there's a video game called Rocksmith where you can jam along with, uh, with uh, proper recording artists. It's, uh... <laughs> I know, I know. I think I bought it and then never played it.
0: Uh, but it was, meant to, it was meant to be really, really cool. Um, but maybe I can get it again. Who knows? And maybe you yes. and I can jam. And if there's one good thing to come out of this lockdown, the formation of the first Empire Band. Because Ben plays bass. We've, we've established yeah. this. Uh, you know, Helen has the voice of an angel. Um, wow. According to H. O'Hara of <laughs> reviewing Helen O'Hara magazine. Uh, and, you know, and our fourth, the the, the person in the fourth chair this week, I'm sure, looks like a badass drummer. And this guy can drum like no tomorrow because welcome, everybody. All the way from the USFA, all the way from LA itself, our man on the West Coast, Jaime Blanco, James
3: White, welcome. Thank you very much, Chris, and hello, England, even though I realise this is a podcast and, you know, it's going out to anyone in the world. (laughs) You're calling on one of those little dial-up phones. Hello, London. How are are you today? Things are well here in the colonies. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Can you drum, Blanco? Not so much, not so much. Probably more of an animal from <laughs> the Muppets, oh if I'm, if I'm honest. Mostly just hitting things. But you know, he's a good, he's a good, he's probably a better drummer than I am. I can drum my fingertips on a on a table. That's that's about the most extent of my powers. Sad but true.
0: If you search within, I think you'll find an inner drummer. But, but hey ho, how are you, how are you, man? You, you, what's L.A. like? How is it? Uh, you know, how, how, during this this
3: time of crisis, L.A. L.A. has has been through the ringer, shall we say? We we've had a lot of a lot of the old COVID cases. Uh, we're starting to open up a little bit more now. Although they've just reported that since the protests that happened and uh, some of the opening up, we're now spiking to some of the highest cases that we've had in uh, a good month or so. So, you know, it's great here. Yeah, we're all all doomed. Well, yes. But no more doomed than usual in LA, so. Okay. Um, have
0: you been to the cinema? Is the cinema opening up again? Sorry, or, or are you just a couple of days away still? The
3: cinemas are still, there have been a couple of tiny independent cinemas that have opened up and drive, drive-ins drive have been doing a nice roaring trade. They've actually been sort of showing a lot of movies. Um, the main cinema change, your big your big change, your AMCs, your Cinemarks and everything, they're due to start opening up about July the 10th, I think, is the, is the date okay. technically for, for opening up. Yeah. So pretty much the same over here.
0: Interesting. Well, listen, we'll get onto that uh, in the movie news section as well. Uh, but before we get into the beloved film fact section. Oh, um, oh Helen, what does that oh shit mean?
1: It means I, I had something open and I've closed it and now I have to find it again.
0: I thought it's you fine, I meant you'd forgotten well, in your attempts bad. to boycott this section. Um, <sighs> before we get into this, I mentioned Cameo in my introduction. Do you guys know what Cameo is? If mm-hmm. you Have you been on Cameo? Have you gone down the rabbit hole that is Cameo? It's incredible. I
2: mm. no clue what you're talking about.
0: Cameo is a website. I think it's literally just Cameo.com. And the idea is that you can, uh, there's a whole bunch of celebrities on there <gasps> and you yes. can hire people. You pay money to these people and they will send you a personalised video message and every now and again i remember it exists and i'm just blown away by that and Mm. initially i thought it was going to be a fad it's just going to fade away very very quickly as these things often do but it seems to be going from strength to strength because obviously in this uh, pandemic in during lockdown it's pretty much the only way a lot of actors can can really earn a crust you know so they can go on there and people will pay the money and they record messages and there you go and uh, it's interesting, there's a lot of people who really put their all into the messages, like John C. McGinley from Scrubs, you know, Dr. Cox from Scrubs. And he's pretty much doing Dr. Cox in his in his, um, in his his messages. Chris Diamantopoulos, who plays a Russ Hanneman on Silicon Valley, does the same. And then there are people, and I won't name them here right now, who put perhaps not quite as much effort into it, but uh, still charge an arm and a leg.
2: It's interesting. I'm loving this. I, I might go on there, and uh, for for the bargain sum of five pounds, I shall come onto Zoom and rip out a guitar solo for someone. <laughs> no one is paying five pounds to hear James Dyer record a message. <laughs> that seems harsh. Well, yeah. Ernie Hudson for £112, pounds sold. Yeah.
1: Apparently, there's loads of former Trump staffers on there who will wish you happy birthday and are making a fortune, so I think it's an inherently bad thing personally.
0: Oh, let's go you know, We don't want to. be' want to give those people any money. Yeah. They've they've ushered in the uh, the end times.
2: Amazing, Chris Reed, who plays one of the prospects in Sons of Anarchy, is <laughs> on there for seven pounds forty seven. <laughs> we can do that. Oh, poor Chris Reed. We can do
0: that. That's a, that's probably the, the cheapest I've seen. Sean Astin's on there. Wesley Snipes is on there. Four hundred quid will get you a message from Wesley Snipes. And the one I clicked on uh, last night from Wesley Snipes, he refers
2: himself as the Daywalker. That's awesome. You can ah. Oh. Robert Ma- uh, Matteo from uh, Oh my God, the Todd, the Todd from Scrub from Scrubs, seventy-eight, eighty-five. Yeah, that's a
0: bargain. So what I'm thinking is we we will, that's over the next week or so. Let's look at our favorites and we'll talk about this in depth next week. And maybe we'll get a Kickstarter going so we can get one of these people on the podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pay them to come on. That and be a That sounds like the worst. <laughs> that's amazing. Possible use of anyone's money, even ours. <laughs> wow
0: it would be a Kickstarter, Helen. It won't be my money. Uh, it's going to be people like sending in their money so uh-huh. I can pay someone else to come on the podcast for two minutes and 25 seconds. No. Uh, but Cameo is, in- cameo is incredible. Uh, so check it out, guys, if you haven't checked it out. Anyway, that is not my film fact because I don't have to have a film fact. I just this have to listen to you guys mm. come up with... what? Do- how what? dare you? How dare you? You're an idle twat. Idle Twat is actually the name of this week's Film fact section, (laughs) (laughs) mainly because I forgot to come up with a name for it, (laughs) but Idle Twat will do. Uh, So the idea is very, very simple. During lockdown, um, and maybe beyond, who knows, during lockdown, I have challenged my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, James and Helen, who are fixtures, and the rotating, revolving fourth chair, this week occupied by Jaime Blanco. And the idea is that you come in armed with an arcane or obscure movie fact that hopefully I won't know. And each week I will award a shiny point to the winner. Uh, At the moment, I think Helen is still in the lead, but that could all change this week if the fourth chair in particular delivers the goods. And I'm going to start with the fourth chair. Uh, Blanco, what is your film fact?
3: My film fact. The year is 1930 and Universal is shooting Dracula, the very, very famous Dracula adaptation by Todd Browning. Uh, This is a time when the uh, talkies have really started to take off and the studio is keen to engage its large international audience who who want to watch the movies and want to hear them at the same time. Now, unfortunately for the studio, uh, dubbing is at a very nascent stage and it's very difficult to do, very expensive, very dodgy. So what they basically decide to do is they use the existing sets uh of the movies and shoot a foreign language version at night when the when the movies basically when the main movie is basically down for the night they'll bring in they bring in different directors they bring in different actors and they shoot an alternate version of the movie in this case dracula and they bring in direct uh, director george melford and enrique tovel avalos which i'm sure helen will tell me was a dreadful pronunciation but still projects, um and they uh the big, the big fact the big thing I found out is, the amazing thing is they're actually able to watch what Browning has shot during the day and they actually look at that and then make adjustments and many people consider the spanish language version of dracula to be the superior version because they look at what was shot and then they think oh how can we do that better and there are actually youtube videos you can see online that compare different shots of the same scene and the spanish language version is moodier it's got more sort of aesthetic to it and it's it's generally uh, agreed to be to be better and uh that was uh, that was kind of that was kind of what i found out and i was kind of fascinated by that because i, I had no idea that they were shooting these things at the same time because of course back in the day mm. when they were still silent films you could just swap out the captions and the you know the title blocks between between scenes and between moments into the other languages but when the talkies arrived big problem so this is what they did <laughs> one additional little additional fact i would add is uh the lead actress in dracula uh was lupita tovar and she is the grand she is the grandmother of chris white's of american pie and about a boy fame
0: really yeah see this is this is becoming a, a recurring theme of this segment in that you know the, the fact the main fact is is good it's fine, it's solid. And then right at the end, the the person goes, Oh, and by the way, just as the you know just as an aside, here's an incredible fucking <laughs> fact that'll blow your mind yeah it happened last week when Helen was banging on about Carrie Elway's hurting his knee and then she went oh and by the way Andre the Giant and um, and Samuel Beckett used to be like best pals and they would go like backpacking together and it was like what why would you do
1: that was an incredible fact lead with that everybody knows that fact I thought you knew that fact
0: I don't know anything Helen we've established yeah. this over eight long years and in fact you've known <laughs> me a lot longer than that so That's you know true. you know I don't know anything that this whole thing is bluff anyway that was a good fact that was a solid fact I think I think it also it pertains to your own life, because when I first met you, you were just plain, simple James White, uh, and you were a nice guy. But then you became Jaime Blanco, and immediately you became sexier, you became taller, you became more commanding, and much more successful. So I think we can uh, we can certainly take a lesson from this, that if you wait long enough, the English-language version is way inferior to the much-improved Spanish-language version. Pretty much, so yeah. So that's a good, solid <laughs> fact. Who am I going to go with next? You know what? I'm going to go with uh, Jimbo next because uh, I forgot and I, I don't have any water, so I'm going to take the next twenty minutes while Jimbo is filibustering <laughs> here to go and grab
2: some water. I see what you did there. That was uh, an interesting attempt at, I believe, you call it humor. Humor. You, your names called it humor, I believe. That's is this right. true? Is
0: this going to be musical accompaniment this week, Jimbo? Are you going to be busting out what? Are, what are your favorite <laughs> chords before we get into this? What What are your chords?
2: What, well, what Where are you on the guitar uh, I tutorial scale? D. Yeah. And A, and then yesterday I learned E, so I now know three chords and can then try and strum along to. I, there's a when I only knew two, there were only about five songs I could strum along to. Now there are there are more. This is so, all, all um, you
1: need for the blues is three chords and the truth. So,
2: there <laughs> it's just the truth part they haven't covered yet. But uh, yeah, so three chords, three chords, yeah, well, it extraordinary. Three chords and and a twat. So, <laughs> well, I think close we're, enough. I am at this stage not unlike <laughs> Slash. <laughs> <laughs> anyway that is not my fact that is not my fact and i would like to renew my objection to this segment Amen. and its entire existence while i'm here mm-hmm. but for the sake of lockdown i will press on my fact for you today concerns dogs which means i win by default Thank you very much but let me let me regale you with the whole fact before you declare Actually, me the winner if we can just cut out
0: the middleman and give you the point now, we can stop. <laughs> Excellent,
2: and and we're done.
0: And we're done. No, sadly, custom right. dictates we must listen to your facts. Okay, Here we you go. must hear the whole dog facts. Trap okay. yourself. So, in.
2: cast your minds back oh, to okay. 2004. Yes, it was only 16 years ago. In fairness, when Andrew Adamson was making the first instalment, and what was absolutely certain to become the start of a Lord of the Rings killing box office busting literary franchise, I refer, of course, to gold plated critical hit Shrek. The Chronicles of Narnia, Damn The Lion, it. the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, you will recall in this film that the youngest child goes through the wardrobe and meets Mr. Tumnus, Lucy. the little shit Edmund, mm-hmm. does likewise, and uh, the worst pevency, Edmund, does likewise, and meets Tilda Swinton, who pretends to be nice, even though she is literally offering sweets to strange children. Uh, and also, Turkish delight is disgusting, and that should have been clear that she's wrong. About. It, That's all that. It is disgusting. So, Thank, yes, you. thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That should have been a warning sign.
1: But when you read that book as a kid, you were like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. I wonder what Turkish Delight is. That sounds great. I should and definitely have you,
0: some. You said, "Mom, can I have some Fry's Turkish Delight, please? <laughs> and she got, she got
2: you the Turkish Delight and it was shit. You go, "Mom, I hate no, you. No, no. See, Fry's Turkish Delight is nice because it tastes nothing like mm-hmm. Turkish Delight. That's true. It's actual Turkish Delight is just gel- gelatinous roses covered in icing sugar. It's vile. Um, anyway, anyway, I'm already digressing, so let's get back on track. <laughs> yes, get on back I, I on feel track, very
0: so. bad about this. I, I, I should know not to distract the, you uh, really the should,
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, uh, the king of digressions. So, Edmund agrees to do Tilda Swinton's bidding, and when he returns to visit her fortress of solitude, he is immediately set upon by Morgrim, mm-hmm. her head of security, sure. who happens to be a wolf. A wolf. Now the film's casting director spent a great deal of time looking for a talking wolf and came up with nothing. So, instead, they decided to enlist the help of man's best friend, the dog. Now, specifically in this case, dogs with a little bit of wolf in their lineage to make them look the part. However, there was a problem. You see, doggos are famously awesome and have a deep-seated affection (laughs) for humans. Uh, (laughs) So, when you ask them to be terrifying and mean, this goes against their nature. Uh So, when Morgrim and Vardin and the other wolves in their little furry army were asked to be fierce they did exactly what they were supposed to do went up to the humans and licked them and wagged their little tails and were generally adorable Mm -hmm. so they shot as much real footage of this as they could but ultimately it looked a little bit less like a menacing confrontation than kind of a great big furry loving so ditto when the wolves are searching for mr and mrs beaver not a euphemism they hid, well. The production, they hid lots of meat around the beaver's hut and they set the dogs loose. But the dogs were, of course, so thrilled at the prospect of free lunch that all you saw on film was little dog asses sticking up in the air as they ferreted around with their tails wagging a mile of minute in kind of unbridled joy. Um, so, so what to do? So they called in visual effects supervisor, Big Jim Burney. Now, sorry, Big sorry, Jim. Sorry, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yes, his name is Big Jim Bernie, or have you? Well, no, added... his name's Jim Bernie, but I'm calling him Big Jim Bernie because I think in my head he's more of a Big Jim <laughs> than just a gym. I so big he's, Jim. I bet he's a big meek Jim. man, bespectacled. He may well be five foot dead. I've no idea. But big Jim Bernie, all right. Big Jim Bernie about McBurney. working, working on dog asses. Now he went through every single plate of these delightful doggos and replaced each and every one of their happy little wagglesome tails with dour. <laughs> drooping ones <laughs> signifying menace. So while cats may be famous for CG'd out arseholes uh Narnia should be famous for digitally downmast dog tails. Now
1: downward facing dogs, here, you might say. Downward
2: <laughs> downward facing dogs, very good. Now the irony here is that actually they might have overstepped the mark because according to dog experts, while humans have different dialects of spoken language, so too the language of the wagging tail differs and different breeds carry their tails at different heights so so um like the the very nearly vertical position you get common to beagles and many terriers and there's a low slung look for sort of greyhounds and whippets and those kind of dogs so all of these positions stop this is exciting stuff chris stop (laughs) pretending to hang yourself now all of these things are relative to the dog so and 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 while we're on the subject the speed of the wag which indicates how excited the dog is can can vary as well so 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 wagging can mean happiness. It can mean agitation, negotiation, aggression, submission, lots of things. What however, the fuck is your fact? I beg of you. However, <laughs> however, all of that is just for fun. All of that is just for fun. My fact, of course, is that these dogs' tails were digitally erased from the Chronicles of Narnia because dogs are friendly and awesome, and their natural adorableness cannot be restrained, save through the application of judicious CGI. Now, a side note to this fact is that while this fact is true, it is only known to humans and not to canines themselves. The reason, the reason for that being, of course, that uh, dogs can't look it up.
0: Oh, no. Oh. Wow. Oh, no.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, it was already off to a bad start.
1: I feel Thank like you. I might change Thank my you. fact just to kind of follow on from that better. <laughs> I, I kind of like. Yeah, I think I'm going we should just go to Winchester
0: fact. and wait for this all to blow over. To be honest,
1: the Winchester's, Okay,
0: let's never speak of this again. Um, <laughs> James's tactics are changing. I have to say, and his <laughs> his tactic mainly is to, I think, outlive us all during his fact, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's just win by default. I'm wearing you down, Chris. I'm wearing <laughs> you down over time. You will abandon this segment for your own well being. Yes, indeed. So now onto this week's winner. Helen, uh what
0: is your- <laughs>
1: well no, I, <laughs> what is I so fact? I had I had a fact I was going to do but now I kind of want to follow on from James's a little bit. Um oh, fact
0: improv. Because, this is great. Well,
1: yeah, the fact improv. So first of all, the they obviously may have had the wrong kind of dog to look aggressive in those scenes because you remember back when we did the Big Empire Big sc- was it big screen? And I was put in charge of the animal panel. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I have never owned a pet in my life, but I got the animal panel, which actually. You woman,
0: you must like animals.
1: <laughs> it ended up being really fascinating. I learned that owls are very stupid and parrots are very smart. But I also learned how to get a dog to act extremely aggressively obviously a trained dog, but they brought along um, a Doberman. So one of the Dobermans who was actually in Martin Scorsese's Hugo. And obviously he he played a guard dog in Hugo. He was one of uh, Sacha Baron Cohen's dogs. So here's (laughs) how you get... (laughs) Here's how you get a dog, like a Doberman anyway, to react incredibly aggressively. If you see, do you ask
2: it to find a fact for a podcast yes, and get that's
1: it to exactly it. You at length? Yes. Uh, what you do is they apparently love those balls on strings, you know, like a little bit of string, like it's only about a foot long and there's a little mm-hmm. rubber ball in the end of it. Doberman, at least. I don't know about all dogs, but Doberman's Doberman. Doberman. Dobermans <laughs> love these things. So basically, if you ever see a movie and there's a Doberman barking furiously at a camera and looking incredibly fierce and incredibly aggressive, that's somebody off camera going, Here boy, look at the ball. Look at the ball. Here it is. That's literally what's happening. <laughs> that's how
3: we, so get, that's anyway. how we get Chris to host a podcast generally. So <laughs> <laughs> here boy, here's the mic. Come on. What? What? bangly bang Should I say bangly bang now? No,
0: you get a treat afterwards.
1: Okay. Uh, so yeah, so that's part one. Part two relates to the question of dog dialogue that you were talking about, because of course there are different dialogue types that people maybe aren't aware of when they go into films. And one such very different um, type occurred when Kevin Costner set out to make Dances with Wolves. Now, to his credit, he decided to actually use an authentic Sioux language for the Sioux characters, and he got an expert in... Um, one of the Lakota languages, a professor, let me get her name right. Professor Doris Leader charge, um came in to basically explain the Lakota language to train the actors in it because they were, you know, from various different Indian nations and also from, obviously there were white people like Kevin Costner himself in there. So she taught them the language. The problem is Lakota Sioux is apparently gendered. So there is a feminine form. And a masculine form. And everybody in the film is apparently speaking the feminine form of the Lakota language, including all the men on screen, which is most of the cast because it's a film. Um so,, uh, yeah, so apparently, if you actually speak Lakota and you go and see that movie, your reaction will be to basically burst out laughing because they all sound like they're effectively kind of cross-dressing, verbally speaking. It, it was a genuinely, you know, respectful thing to do, and I don't know why they didn't make a bigger deal of it. But yeah, they weren't like worried about it at the time. But apparently, okay. if you are actually a native speaker, it looks ridiculous.
0: All right. So, just to clarify that fact: the dances with wolves fact was that had you got that? How,
2: was it prepared? Did you know
1: no, that already? No, I, I read that the other day, and I just thought it was interesting. Okay. See,
0: that's impressive. That's impressive.
2: No, 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 no. There were, there were far too few dogs in that. <laughs> no.
1: It's not dog fact of the week. It's like film fact of the week. So, you know.
2: Here's the thing.
0: I love dogs. And you softened me up with your, your just by mentioning dogs, I was on board. And then your fact was so boring that <laughs> I'm not sure that if pressed, if you put a gun to my head, I could actually tell you what you said. <laughs> It was something I'm, about wagging tails, and I'm I'm not
2: getting credit for the Shaun of the Dead joke either. That no, that was terrible.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? Okay. I
2: kind of, no, no, I was sneak sneakily
0: annoyed because I should have thought of it myself. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Um, all right. So, hmm, Helen came up with one of the top of her head. That's impressive. Eh. Hmm. And None of them I knew. None of them I knew. On the other hand, I like Blancos. You know what? It's a tie. It's a tie. It's a tie
2: this week. Sorry, Jimbo. (laughs) Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. So not only is my clearly the best fat not winning, I'm coming by default last. (laughs) Sorry. You of
0: all people should know that this is objectively subjective, right? (laughs) (laughs) You of all people should know that. Uh, So at the moment, I'm point to Blanco, point to Helen. Is there anyone here who didn't get a point? I, no, I think it's everyone. I think it's everyone. Yeah, okay, so that's good. So that's the uh, the fact section done for this week. It was, of course, called Idle Twat this week. Uh, if you have any suggestions for names, because I am an idle twat, then do tweet me or slide into my DMs. All right, now it is time for our first guest this week, DeFive Bloods, which is the latest Spike Lee joint, has been on Netflix for a couple weeks now, so hopefully you have seen it, and hopefully you've been blown away by it. Uh, it is, for my money, his best movie in years, even better than Black Klansman, and at the heart of his story, i a group of African-American Vietnam vets who return to the country in search of the remains of their former leader and a whole load of gold, is an incredible incendiary performance from the wonderful Delroy Lindo, uh, which is sure to be in contention for Oscars if and when they ever happen again. Uh, It is Lindo's fourth film with Lee after a couple of decades away from each other, uh, and uh, Delroy and I spoke after some (laughs) faffing around, uh, which he may refer to in the beginning of this, uh, over Squadcast last week. And though we only had about 15 minutes or so, we packed a lot in there about his reunion with Spike, uh, which he wanted to clarify something as well, uh, his character choices, and much, much more. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast in lockdown, of course, after much technological faffing (laughs) by the star of The Five Bloods. Delroy Lindo, how are you, sir?
4: I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, stressed, but good. We got there in the end. I'm gonna say to all your uh, all your audience, you owe me ten thousand dollars, man. I mean it. It seems seems arbitrary.
0: Why ten thousand dollars? I mean,
4: you know, i listen, Empire will cut you a check. You know what, man? I'm not greedy. Five. Give me five thousand dollars, and we're good to go. (laughs) Go ahead.
0: Will you take a pound a year for the next 5,000 years? I
4: will. I will.
0: <laughs> All right. Then you're then you're on. You are on. Um, congratulations on the film. The film Thanks. is fantastic. And, Thanks. you know, now it's been out a, a week. It's been on Netflix a week, and uh, people are beginning to experience it. And uh, the the acclaim that you are getting for your uh, wonderful performance, the, uh, you must feel pretty good about that on, on some level, I guess.
4: Yes. Uh, uh, look, uh, without being coy, yes, I feel... Terrific. First of all, period. I feel terrific. And it's it's really wonderful. And not only the, um, the broad acclaim for myself uh, and the various people that I'm hearing from um, literally all over the world, which is a deeply affirming, um, but obviously I'm also really, really um, delighted for the film. And for my fellow actors, and I, and I feel um, I need to name them because I just do. And that's um, Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Norm Lewis, Chadwick Bozeman, and obviously um, Spike, who brought us all together. But the answer to your question is, it, it feels really wonderful to get this kind of response.
0: So many things can... Can change uh, in in making a movie, but when you had finished filming this, did you feel in your heart of hearts that this was special? That you had, uh, you know, for one of a better phrase, knocked it out of the park.
4: Um, actually, I'm going to say special, because um, knocked it out of, knocked it out of the park connotes something slightly different. But I will say um, it felt ve- the, the the process of making the film of, of the process of doing the work had been absolutely phenomenal and special is a really, really, um, um, apt appropriate term. It did indeed feel really special. And I remember Clark and I, we had lunch, <clears throat> I don't know, a couple of weeks after we were wrapped and we were both back in America. I know Clark lives in London, but he was visiting, um, America. and he and I had lunch and, and, What I said to him uh, and what I said to people who were really close to me is that um, because the process had felt so particular and special, I hoped that in the editing process, um, the editing process captured the essence of how special the work had been, uh, being in Thailand and Vietnam, making the work. And seeing the cut version of the film, it absolutely has has done that. So I am
0: um, doubly pleased and, and and gratified and affirmed. Now that the film has been out for a week, I think without going into spoilers too much, we can I think we can talk about one of the standout moments of the movie, which is uh, Paul's. Soliloquy, for for one of a better word again, uh, which is such a rarely deployed device. But Spike, over the years, has a way of just messing with film grammar, and just he'll just he'll just introduce an experiment, and I, I, it's an incredible incredible moment.
4: That's God, that, very well put. Messing with film grammar, I would have never thought to say that, but that's exactly correct. And frankly, um and I hope this does not come across as obsequious, but it goes to the heart of his particular brilliance. Because in the process of messing with film grammar, as as you say, it was also apparently the exact right thing um, to do. It was the thing that apparently the narrative, the story needed, and he knew that. Um, I have to tell you, when he said, oh, you'll be doing these, this scene you'll be doing right to the camera. This scene you'll be doing right to the camera. And I said, okay, fine Without, I had no clue, no clue whatsoever that it would land with that kind of impact um, and be so effective. And it's, you know, it's part of his genius, frankly, in that Mm -hmm. moment, knowing what his narrative needs
0: does that transform how you approach it knowing that you're going to be delivering it to camera and breaking the fourth wall
4: no no uh, it it does it does not and it did not and i love also your use of the term or the word soliloquy because it is it is a soliloquy and um, the reason that i especially like the word soliloquy is because it speaks Directly to the interpretation that I had of Paul, which is that he is a large, tragic figure, very much in the mold of August Wilson or William Shakespeare. Um, so, so soliloquy is very apt. Um, no, I, 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 I just it, your question was does it does it change how I approach the work knowing that it will be um, directly to the camera? N- n- not, not really. I, I think that. Um, one works on the material in the way that one works on the material, meaning there's nothing special that one does because it is going to be a soliloquy. Mm. Uh, I guess to, to, um, um, to um, contradict myself a little, when one is delivering a soliloquy, speaking to um, either a camera, or out into the audience or break in, otherwise breaking the fourth wall, one still has to have um, some entity or entities plural that one is communicating with. And um, that would be the case no matter what, whether one is working in film and speaking directly to the camera or working in the theater and speaking quote unquote out into the audience. One still has to have an entity or entities, plural, that one is communicating with.
0: This is your first film with Spike for uh, 25 years. Uh, it's your fourth right. film together. Um, I know you've said in, in interviews previously that you and Spike had not necessarily a falling out, in it, but certainly there you know, there had been a disagreement. That Spike calling you for this movie...
4: Hold on a second. No, 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 no. Um... Are you familiar with, what's the name of that game? I think it's called Telephone. (laughs) Do you know what that game is? Where everybody sits in a circle and whispers something.
0: Yeah.
4: Right? And by the time it gets to the last person, what was originally whispered has completely changed. And this is an example of Telephone. No, we did not have a falling out at all. What I have said in previous interviews was that there were disagreements on this film, but that they were not um, the most important thing. And frankly, they were relatively minor, Mm. Um, but the important thing about whatever disagreements we had on this film was the important thing was that we were able to get past them in order Mm. to apply ourselves to the work. Our not working together for 25 years had nothing at all to do with any kind of disagreement or whatever at all. Now you can ask Spike that same question, and perhaps there was something that Spike felt. But no, we did not have we 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 did not have a disagreement
0: at all. The point I was going to get at as well was not necessarily about a disagreement, but about the fact that this is a movie about reuniting and reconnecting with the past mm-hmm. and reexamining the past and. Uh, sure. You know, Spike does this a lot. Spike works with people uh, a number of times. He hasn't worked with Denzel for a number of years, for example. He hasn't worked with jean Carlo Esposito for a number of years either. So, you know, he has his troop of actors that he likes to work with. Then sometimes he won't, and then he'll come back to it.
4: I I think it's uh, on on some level as simple as that, right? I mean, um, I, I want to. I'd like to believe that he is aware of what he needs, which actors he needs, which for the given project. Now, again, you really should, that's a great question for Spike. You know, how, how is it that you work with actors um, back to back to back to back, and then there's a gap of time, in my case, a large gap of time before you come back to them. Um, That's really a question for Spike. Being outside of taking a half a step back and looking at it, I, I, I'd like to believe that it has to do on some level with Spike um, knowing, quote unquote, that this actor will be right in this particular project. Um, I did not know this at the time, but I've come to know in the various interviews we've been doing in, in support of this film, that he's, I've heard him say that I was the only person he wanted for this part, which um, had I known that, I would have asked for more money. But that's another <laughs> kidding, kidding. Um, but but, but um, I knew that Spike wanted me in this film. I was very clear that he wanted me um, in this project, period, the end. Um, he did not um, articulate to me, um, you're the only one for this part. That he did not, he did not say that, but he did uh, make it clear to me that he he wanted me in the film.
0: There's maybe an element of waiting for you to hit the right age before he worked with you again.
4: That's a great question. You know, if I were five or 10 years younger, Hmm. would he still have wanted me in this part? Would he have felt that I had the whatever to bring to this part?
0: But but talking of things that you bring to this part, there is a tremendous sense on Paul's part of of disillusionment with his lot in life. This is, yeah. You know why he has become. I know you've, you've talked about this in previous interviews. Why he is a Trump supporter? Why he's bought into the the principles of of MAGA? Why he wears that that cap? Um, and you know, I know that initially you weren't sure about playing this, but playing a, a Trump supporter. But in investigating that. Did that give Paul that sort of wellspring of 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 anger on which you based your performance?
4: Um, it was not only the short answer is yes. The um, and I am understandably extremely protective of Paul uh, because I love Paul, and so when I hear people refer to Paul's anger, um, um my instinctive response is um uh to want to defend mm. that emotional state because the emotional state that quite a few people are defining as anger <clears throat> from Paul comes comes from a very very that whatever that emotional state is what it, that intensity that 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 um, um, tornado of response that can happen, all I can say is it's well-earned from Paul's point of view and completely legitimate in terms of Paul's truth and in terms of Paul's life. Um, and I think, and this is not a slight against you at all or anybody else who refers to Paul as angry, it feels... A little, a little bit like um, a one-dimensionalizing of that emotional state. Because the emotional state, the, the combustion that um, Paul possesses and his, his, his tendency to respond, my tendency to respond in a combustible way to given um, uh, instances are very well earned in terms of what I have been through in my life, and also it is very accurate to the state of PTSD. Uh, and I I became aware of that as a result of speaking with Vietnam vets, and also uh, I spoke with one vet who was had been in the Iraq War. And one of the components that they explained to me is present with PTSD is a is a is a um, um, a reacting, uh, huge reactions that seem arbitrary, that seem out of place, huge intensified combustible reactions. Um, so that all seemed consistent with for me, it, it seemed consistent a with the the condition of PTSD. One, and two, as an outgrowth, as a result of the losses and the betrayals that Paul has suffered.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there, there's so much to get into with this this role, Delroy, and there's so much to get into with this performance. I mean, you know, Paul is he's multifaceted. There's so much going on with this character. It's it's phenomenal. But we are out of time, I'm afraid. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure.
4: Thank you very much. All the best. God bless. Bye now. Cheers, man. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: All right, so that was the great Delroy Lindo, and Defy Bloods* is on Netflix if you do want to check it out if you haven't already done so. Okay, now it is time to tackle this week's listener question, and this one comes uh, once again on Twitter from at Lavers78, and they were saying that basically they've been drinking a lot of tea during lockdown, you know, every couple of minutes, because, you know, we're British, we just drink loads of tea. And so they're asking, the question is, what have been some inventive slash great uses of tea or coffee cups that have been used to great effect in movies? Uh, They went on to list three great moments. Uh, I'm not going to tell you guys what they are. I want to see if you come up with them already.
1: I mean, the answer is the usual suspects, isn't it? That was
0: one. Yeah, yeah should we just one. stop there? Yeah, that's it. Okay. I mean. Kobayashi China. If you wanted to have your question right out <laughs> in the Podcast, yes, usual suspects.
2: What happens in the usual suspects? He drops it. He drops it. Yes, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, he that's, drops his mug. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the mother of all oh shit movie moments. And you also you see on the bottom the little Kobayashi is the make of the cup, and he's looking at the notes before he sees it, and it falls. And he has an awful lot of cream in his coffee. I don't know if you noticed that. It looks disgusting. And it oh. smashes. And that's when we knew. That spoiler. Verbal Kint is, guys. Yeah, this is a uh, spoilers
0: for the end of the usual suspects. By the way, <laughs> twenty-five years old. I think is one of the most famous endings in movie history. Hopefully, we should be okay. But you never know. You never know. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible moment, and it's when he sees Agent Kuyan, uh, Dave Kuyan, played by Chaz Pameltieri, uh, looks down at the coffee mug, and he sees Kobayashi written on it. And Kobayashi, of course, is the name of Pete Postlethwaite's lawyer and that's what he knows that Ferbal Kent has been selling him a lame duck of a story
2: no. does he? I don't think he sees is Isn't it on the bottom of the mug? Mm-hmm. Don't we see it? We see it, yeah. Does he see it, or is he looking at the notice board? Yeah,
1: he he realises it, but we see the mug, I think. He, he, does, yeah. he, he does look down and see it, but I think he drops the mug because he's realised.
2: Yes. Yeah, because he's looking at yeah. the board, and he sees like the Skokie, Illinois, barbershop, mm-hmm. all those different things from the story.
0: Actually, that's a good point. He may not see the mug. The mug, may, You may, be, mm, you may think- be right, the mug may be just something we see. But uh, yeah, still one of the great reveals. Absolutely great. Film. So you know the, the story famously is Macquarie had the ending and then worked his way backwards on that, <laughs> which is which is kind of amazing. Uh, all right. Genius. That is one of the three that Ad 78 had listed. What's the uh, what the other two? Ooh
2: fellas uh, Goodfellas. fellas Coffee to go. Goodfellas, coffee to go. So when Stacks, when Samuel L. Jackson's character gets killed, uh uh Tommy says, uh, asks um oh god what's his name Frankie to make a pot of coffee before he whacks him and then he turns around and goes make the coffee to go as a joke when he leaves oh
3: okay yeah yeah yeah
0: that's a good scene that's a good scene but it's not that it is not that
3: any ideas can I hazard a guess here Mm -hmm. um a more recent a more recent one is the uh Teacup as hypnosis tool in Get Out. Ooh, yes. yes, that is With good. With Catherine Keener mm-hmm. doing her little stirry, stirry, stirry thing <laughs> as uh, Paul <laughs> Derry Derry, Kluher, yes. Daniel Cluer slowly sinks into the uh, what is the it, sunken the, place? Uh, the sunken place. Yes. Yeah, that is correct. That was, that was what first. That was what first. When 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 they sort of specified. Uh, that it was a tea, well, a tea or coffee cup or mug. I thought, yeah, that's, that's something that sticks mm. in my brain as mm. a as a famous tea cup scene as opposed to just, oh, they had some tea. I feel obliged to mention any time Captain
2: Jean-Luc Picard orders tea Earl Grey hot. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. Does he do a lot of that in movies, though, or is it all mainly no, next-gen? No, he, does, he, does, he does do it in movies, I believe. I, can't, I couldn't pick which one, but it's almost certainly going to be one in, in one of the next-gen ones. Okay.
1: <laughs> Specific, I love it
2: Blanco has yeah. uh, nailed
0: the I mean, He's nailed one of the, the, the three That Labour 78 had, had mentioned The mm, other one, I don't know the... That it's that iconic But maybe, but anyway Let's just, just see if you guys Is nail it Is there
1: the second Austin Powers? I don't remember what it was uh, called Was that the Spy Who Shagged Me?
0: But, spy Shagged Me, yes, that's correct
1: Yes, so there's the bit where he mixes up The coffee pot and the stool sample <laughs> 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 it's not a great moment. Classic gag. for, for mugs. Okay. Um, don't remember but that. But, it does happen. Okay.
0: That's not it. That isn't it. But anyway, they, okay. we're, we're, we're maybe focusing on the wrong thing here. But I just, what other moments are there? And if you just happen to mention the one that uh, he has listed, I'll tell you. How
2: about Thor? Yes. This drink. I like it. That's
1: another
0: cracking moment. Thank you very much. I had literally cracking. It is. <laughs> That's so funny. That's good. And when people go, oh, Hemsworth, he's so funny and throw a Ragnarok, and I never saw him being funny
2: before. It's like, what are you doing? No, he's been funny from the get go. I mean, frankly, the dark world isn't a lolfest, but uh, he's funny in it sometimes. Funny. Yeah. He yeah. is. He has his moments. He hangs he has his Mjolnir
0: moments. up in the, on the hook mm-hmm. in. The Mjolnir.
2: Mjolnir. And the, uh, <laughs>
1: is the hook worthy? I mean, what are we saying?
0: <laughs> uh, that is a cracking one, uh, which means I didn't have it written down. Damn you. Damn you, Dyer. Uh, any others?
3: Uh, well, there were a couple of others. Um, it's tea, tea more than coffee. Uh, and it's it's the scene from Scott Pilgrim best of the world and and he's he's sort of on his on on a date with Ramona and and she says do you want some tea and 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 he says you know what have you got and she opens up her cupboard and she lists off this incredible sort of this incredible list of of teas that and and he's convinced that she's made up at least one of them and I think in the end she prompts for sleepy time tea which which to him sounds very good and it's it's just this this wacky list of of all sorts of weird teas that that um that Mary Elizabeth Winstead rattles off at a, a wonderful rate and that, that's one that kind of stuck in my head and definitely mm. wasn't just me googling it. <laughs> it definitely just stuck in my head um, there was one other one that I I thought about was there's um, a, a coffee scene in LA Story in, in Steve Martin's LA Story and they start ordering coffee and it's all that it's the LA sort of cliche oh, like yeah. half-caf, decaf, yep. double-caf one-caf <gasps> can I get this can I get coffee-flavored ice cream can I get this and then Steve Martin says he wants I think it's something like a decaf half-calf something latte with a twist of lemon and then everyone around the table starts going oh i'll have a twist of lemon i'll have a twist of lemon and then the next moment is them grabbing like lemons out of a box that because they need to suddenly fill all these lemon orders of this this coffee so
5: yeah
2: speaking of twists of lemon is sarah in beverly hills cop is he giving him tea or is it actually an alcoholic drink it's an alcoholic drink isn't it i know it has a twist of lemon in it's what made me think of it i don't know what's the scene i don't remember that one Oh, it's the it's the gallery, Serge, the gallery sort of uh, curator in Beverly Hills Cop it's with a twist of lemon. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I think it's tea. Well, it I've got a better one. Tea, isn't or is it is or it is, tea? is it water?
0: One of the two. I don't think it's, I don't think it's an alcohol, alcoholic drink because you wouldn't you wouldn't offer an alcoholic drink to someone who's coming to a mm. to a gallery.
2: But no, the one I was going to say to you is coffee. <laughs>
0: Jesus.
4: No, offer me coffee. Offer
0: me coffee. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Rock. Yeah. Womack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm Stanley Goodspeed.
2: Well, of course you
0: are. (laughs) But of course you are. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Um,
1: Does it have to be in a coffee mug?
0: No. I'll, I'll, I'll open it out.
1: In that case... Orange Marker Frappuccinos. Ah,
0: oh, yes, 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 yes. That
1: sad moment where you realise that just because you're really, really, really ridiculously good looking doesn't mean you can't <laughs> not die in a freak gasoline fight <laughs> incident.
6: <laughs> <sighs>
2: uh, amazing. Have we still not cracked the final one? No, you have one. You haven't. Is it Glengarry Glen Ross? Put that coffee
0: down. Coffee is for coffee closers. Coffee is for closers. It's not because it, no. I think he was, Labour78 was was specifically focusing this on tea or coffee cups. And I don't think uh, that really plays a big part no. in, the, in the plot or as a, as a moment. Uh, I have a couple. I have mm-hmm. a couple. Uh, one even more recent than Get Out is Knives Out.
1: Ah. Which
0: begins and ends with close-ups of the same mug. And I really, really desperately want that coffee mug in my life, even though I don't drink coffee. Um, But uh, that's a good one. Hudson Hawk, my beloved, much maligned Hudson Hawk. (laughs) uh, Basically, the entire running time of that movie, uh, Bruce Willis' Eddie Hudson Hawk, he's trying to drink a cappuccino. And he is constantly thwarted in his attempts to drink this. Mm. One is shot out of his hand. He spills one over himself. And at the end, he finally uh, goes through hell and earth. He gets the perfect cup of coffee with the, just the right amount of foam, and then he drinks it, and because he's a smug son of a bitch, he smirks and throws it behind him, and that's how the film ends.
1: Oh, that's not good. Wait, wh- now, is he still in Rome at the end? I don't remember. I
0: think he's still in Rome at the end, yes.
1: So he would have gone to the San Eustacio. Well, obviously. He to San Eustacio for the really good cappuccino yes. there.
0: What's okay. the telling for Starbucks? Starbucks, I guess. Yeah, just go there. Don't
1: do that. Don't oh, don't you want do, to do that. that. Okay. Don't no. You can't go to Italy and have Starbucks. It's Just mm, <laughs> no. You go mm-hmm.
0: to Starbucks and you go to Macchiates, taking a bit of mm. bit of culture, bit of cuisine.
1: In fairness, the Macchiates in Rome is very fancy. They've got one by the Spanish Steps, and it's got like genuinely like crazy Roman architecture. It's weird. Very, really? much, very much worth a visit. Okay, mm-hmm.
0: I'll check that Not out. Kidding. I'll check that out. If I'm ever allowed to travel again. Oh, God. <laughs> um, oh. So uh, another one I'm going to mention as well. Uh, you know, if we're extending it to coffee scenes, and obviously that, that brings in the scene in heat, where, you know. Yeah. Knows, oh, yes. You know yes, you know, yes, yes. Yeah. What do you saying? Buy you a cup of coffee? I couldn't remember the
1: mugs there, though, you know? I couldn't remember there being a particularly mug-focused
3: f- moment.
0: I just think they were nice mugs. It was Kate Mantellini's. It was, you know, which I think is sadly gone now. Blanco, is that, that correct? It is. Yeah. Sadly. It
3: has been gone for a few years. Oh, very,
0: very such sadly. A yeah. shame, such yeah. a shame. Such um, a shame. Someone famous was a waitress there. Whilst that was all happening. I can't remember who it is, so this is useful. If I if, if this was the film fact section, if you're not in the yeah, fact no, section. Yeah. <laughs> so there was something I think there was someone maybe on the film. I can't quite recall. Oh wait, no, that wasn't a film. It was a dream. I dreamt it. Um
1: so. <laughs> There must be some great there must be some great afternoon tea films. I mean oh, yeah. your beloved Downton Abbey, James. Certainly uh-huh. the importance of being earnest, the one with Reese Witherspoon had a good afternoon tea scene. Um, <laughs> Uh, The souvenir has a very good afternoon tea um, scene with really nice looking china.
2: (laughs) No one, no one pours a cuppa quite like the Dowager Countess.
1: (laughs) She never pours.
2: Good Lord. Surely she has poured for her. Right? She has them poured for her. She doesn't. Mm-hmm. One does not pour.
0: I'm going to throw in as well Sean of the Dead, the uh, the famous montage where Sean outlines his plan for survival to Ed. And within that, you have three mini montages. There's one that obviously ends with them at the Winchester, waiting for this all to blow mm-hmm. over. Uh, and they're smashing clinking glasses of, of amber nectar together. Uh, but the two previous mini montages within this montage uh, see Sean at the end clinking. A mug of tea uh, and the the mugs change in each montage so the first mug is simply repeating the logo I am a genius and the second mug says cool 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 because Sean is an idiot in his imagination he is a god so those are the uh, those are the ones I'm gonna throw in as well what was the third one the third one was Gary Cole in office space
1: oh of course
0: I don't know if it's necessarily plot device or plot related or as No, but it's but it's you know yeah. a guy drinking coffee. You remember him. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there was that one. There mm. was that one. But yeah, that's fair. So we did, we discussed fruit a couple of weeks ago or in last week's episode <laughs> I can't quite remember and now this week we're discussing coffee. Okay, you're just going around the kitchen. This is great. Next week, bread. Oh it's my just, God. Somebody's
1: just saying what they see. <laughs> I love lamp. I
0: mean.
1: Okay. What are the greatest cool.
0: moments involving lamps in the movies? Pixar. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Helen wins that one. (laughs) Moxer (laughs) Jr. Let's not bother with that one. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. Twitter is the best way right now, mainly because I'm not checking email and I'm not bothering about Facebook. So basically, it's just when I say number of methods, I mean one method. Get in touch with us on Twitter. Uh, at Empire Magazine is the Twitter account or use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Chances are we won't see it. Or you can just tweet me directly or you can even slide into my DMs as indeed at Lavers78 did. Do keep it clean. Do keep it tidy. Uh, no rough stuff. And maybe I will consider your question for this week's show. Okay, time now to talk about this week's movie news. And there is a lot of it, which is always good to see. Uh, last week, of course, we discussed... Fairly intensively, the decision of certain cinema chains in the UK to reopen on July 10th. Since then, things have changed slightly uh, in that the the British government, led of course by our incomparable Prime Minister, a mop, let us become sentient. uh, have brought the uh, the opening dates forward. So now cinemas, some cin- cinemas can reopen from July 4th, which is next Saturday. I'm not sure whether cinema chains are going to be doing that. I think as far as I know, Cineworld and Picturehouse are still sticking to July 10th. So is Showcase. And I'm not sure yet about the likes of Few and Odeon there looking at the situation. But, um... You know, have your opinions changed in this, you know, Blanco? Where do you stand in this? You, you know, you, 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 you live in LA. You might be able to go to some cinemas, but do you? Do you take the risk?
3: Honestly, uh, right now, I, I really do have to concur with with what you guys were saying uh, last week on the pod. I am desperate to get back into cinemas and to see movies and to be in big crowds and enjoy movies that way but right now and particularly given how things are in LA with uh sort of cases starting to spike again hospitalizations going up deaths going up i really don't think i will be back in the cinema anytime soon much before probably september at this point maybe I uh, just personally, I, I I know there are people who are desperate to get back in and people who have said to me that they will be going back as soon as they are physically able, as soon as the places are open uh, here in L.A. It seems to be it's going to be around the 10th for most of the major chains. Some indie cinemas are already open, and of course, people have been driving a lot of business to the drive ins, which is great. But uh, yeah, personally, not ready to go back yet not ready to go back yet. I, I really, really want to. I just don't think it's going to be safe.
0: <laughs> you sound like an ex-con in a movie who's like on his third strike. And you can't maybe go back. I ain't going to go back.
3: You're like De Niro at the end of heat. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just, I just don't know if they're going to have the proper procedures in place. I know that when some of the like AMC and a couple of the other chains first made their announcements, they were saying, "Oh, we'll we might be encouraging people to wear masks, but we won't be uh, sort of mandating it." And now they've had yeah. to do a bit of a U-turn uh, because there was a huge outcry saying, "What the hell are you playing at? Mm-hmm. Surely people have to wear masks just to be safe." And now they are saying that yes, in in LA particularly, you will have to. I mean, hell, we have a a that says you have to wear a mask whenever you're outside. Mm. Anyway, people not everybody does because some people are stupid and want to put us all at risk. But yeah, in general yeah. in LA, mask, mask, mark is the way to go, plus social distancing. We we haven't developed anything like the, oh maybe we'll cut it back to one meter or anything like that in certain places. So
1: mm-hmm. it's it's a very strange situation I think here because now that we have a bit more detail on what reopen cinemas will look like I, it has actually made me more uh, hesitant to go back than I was. Um, I mean, they're saying that they yeah. will manage yeah. occupancy levels, but that there will be no o- capacity cap. So it won't be like it's 25% of seats max. That That yeah. isn't...
2: Because that's going to work when Tenet gets yeah. released. Um,
1: staff will be appointed social distancing champions. In other words, we're going to blame our employees for anything that goes wrong. Um, cafes yeah. must remain closed. Fine. Wearing masks is neither expected nor encouraged, which is weird. And that seems to be driven... Absolutely by economics, because popcorn can be served. So that's clearly what's sort of behind that thinking. But that to me is not a terribly oh. reassuring list of of um, steps being taken. And I hope that individuals' cinemas maybe go a little bit further than that. But it's mm. it's very strange because, mm. again, here we don't really have it under control. And the government would like us to think that we do, but I, it doesn't necessarily I mean, feel that way.
0: They've stopped doing their daily conferences, mm. they're, they're, which is just blows my mind it's like this hasn't <laughs> you know, this hasn't gone away you know
1: no
0: and listen mm-hmm. i get it i get it i you yeah. know i'm desperate to go back to cinema i'm desperate to support cinemas i'm desperate that cinemas don't close as well mm-hmm. but I, and i you know full disclosure as well i may be seeing a screening of something soon um so i may have to go into london but that's not the same thing necessarily because i think it might be just me in the room seeing something but i don't know we're a few weeks away from the movie everyone's talking about, Russell Crowe's unhinged uh, opening in cinemas. And do we go to it? You know, is James going to be alive to go to it? Cause he's being attacked by a wasp on camera right now.
2: (laughs) You're not allergic. Are you? I'm not. No, I, I like your little speech there, Chris. That was the longer, uncut speech that Hudson makes in *Aliens*. Like that thing's gonna come in here like did before. And it's <laughs> gonna come in here. It's gonna come in here. It's gonna kill us. Uh, no, I, I, am disappointed actually because I was rather hoping they would have a handle on this and Where's they would have, the you know, pres- where is it
4: help me <laughs> where is it? It? Where's, Where's the handle? handle?
0: Get
2: the handle was on
4: it. Who's <laughs> oh, God? Who's <laughs> <the pews laughs> <protect laughs> <us.
0: laughs>
2: it's not an Asgard it's actually a face guard that's supposed to protect us exactly uh, I thought they would have a handle on it and I thought that that would make people feel in some way secure and if they had procedures in place you'd think oh okay they, they know what they're doing but since it's abundantly clear that no one has the first fucking clue <laughs> the, the biggest tragedy of this whole thing is that I have ordered a kind of a very large filtered black face mask. And I was really looking forward to going in and going out to people who I'm London's recording <laughs> And I'm now not going to be able to do that. And frankly, that's sucks. You merely adopted the picture house. I was born <laughs> in the picture house. I was murdered by it. What a lovely film.
0: Oh, it'd be great. I saw this it'd week, I, I, I want to buy some cool geeky masks. So listen, if anyone knows out there of any like, you know, if you have any recommendations of where you can get a properly geeky mask, um, and something that's good as well. It's not just an old T-shirt. Face that's been, ones. You can get facehugger yeah, ones. No, something that I'd like to wear in public would be nice. Um, something like Marvel-y or you know, you know, Martin Scorsese's face. You know that, that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> then do uh, do get in touch on Twitter and let me know because I saw this week that Disney have um, introduced, but only in the states for a four pack. Of masks, one of which is the bottom half of the Hulk's face, and the which is the the Marvel logo. Um, and I would be happy to wear that, but unfortunately, you, you can't get it over here. I've no. ordered a couple of LFC masks, um, but they haven't arrived quite <laughs> yet. A bit like the long-awaited nineteenth uh, title. Blanco, what's your mask game? What are you What are you wearing?
3: Uh, my mask game is uh, well, I I am lucky enough to live with someone who makes masks, um, who has sort of dug into her her heretofore untapped, untapped uh, sewing talent and uh, right now I'm rocking a couple of different ones it's not particularly geeky geeky but it's a it's sort of a, a London a London-y print to, to make me think of home and, and everyone there uh, lots of you know sort of palace guards and uh, tower bridge and that sort of stuff and have a cup of tea that's a, which seems fitting for the podcast this week so Is that's Is it my- a
0: mask made out of Paddington skin? Because I can't think of anything more British <laughs> than that you just capture the little bear
3: you skin the fucker alive and you wear them on your face what? What could be how, more?
0: What could be more heartwarming than that? How dare you,
3: sir? How dare you, sir? How that you would besmirch the the idea of Paddington in that way? How I, I'm sending Paul King round to to give you the hardest of stare right now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I have a cool mask that has like planets and stars on it. It's very nice. Okay. I
0: like it. That's good. That's good. Is it uh, does it filter out the, the badness, the covid? Does it filter out the covid?
1: I mean in th- I mean in theory it helps a bit, but it's not one of these like face hugging, you know, sealed to your skin masks, so it's mm. in, in no way medically rated. You should,
2: should never hold a seal to your skin. They don't like it. <laughs> Unless of course you want to be kissed by a rose. Yay. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, um you can get Bane replica kind of like a uh, like little no, yeah.
1: Mm-mm. <laughs>
2: Things mask things that are like Bane replica ones. I could totally rock Who one. of those. was
0: on Twitter. I think it was Matt Singer uh, on Twitter. He's a very very good follow. The other the other week uh, was saying because we talked about this briefly on last week's episode. And I think someone maybe mentioned this as an idea. But why aren't the cinema chains selling masks? Why aren't the movie companies selling masks that are very very geek themed and very very geek friendly? Like why, for example, you know we've seen the trend for Tenant, and this is what Matt Singer was saying. So if, <laughs> if he accuses me of ripping off his idea, I'm going to give him credit. Um, why? You know, we've seen in Tenet that John David Washington and uh, Robert Pattinson wear masks in the movie. So why don't you go to a cinema and pick up in the cinema a Tenet exclusive mask that you can wear, and they'll be worth shitloads one day on eBay, you know, or an Inception mask, or you know, a Bane mask, or why?
2: This because
1: feels they like- want you to spend money on popcorn.
2: Mm. <sighs> Is it instead of a mask, you just take your you face? Oh, oh, you could make way more money from the mask
1: than you would the popcorn. Yeah, you probably could.
0: And I, I get it. I I absolutely totally get it. That some, you know, a lot of companies don't want to be seen to be cashing in on on a pandemic. I totally get that. I, I, but at this point, we have to be realistic. We you know we all want to wear masks. We all should wear masks. So why not make them something that you would want to wear? Something that looks good and also kind of shows off your your geek colors uh, at the same time.
1: Mm. Um, There's somebody I I follow on Instagram. I think it's Prophecy Girl HQ, who is currently Mm -hmm. ramping up production on Geeky Masks, but she is not, I believe, there yet. But it might be worth keeping an eye on her account um, because she does very good t-shirts as well. That's
0: interesting, because I'm I'm seeing a lot of stuff on Etsy that is just, you know, repurposed and Mm -hmm. not to denigrate your lady friend uh, Blanco, but, you know, uh, uh, repurposed, repackaged T-shirts is not what I want to wear on my face. I want to wear something that has been bespoke, that has been made specifically uh, as a mask. And then it will also make me look, quote unquote, cool. Whilst doing so. And I think Paddington skin is the way to no. go, guys. Especially when it's gonna get Easter. cold. We're gonna be entering the winter, and we're gonna be wanting to wear something warm on our face. So either Chewbacca's fur or Paddington skin, I'm happy with either of those. Uh but yeah, it's it's a, it's an endless dilemma, well, I'm sure we'll be discussing, especially as we tick around to cinemas reopening on both sides of the Atlantic and indeed around the world. Um and you know, if you live in a country where cinemas have reopened, Right in. Let us know what your experience is like. Mm. Um, Anyway, let's get on to some movie news, uh, because one day cinemas will reopen and we'll be able to sit in comfort with strangers and breathe on each other, and we'll be able to watch movies. And one of those movies might be the Flash movie, which has been Mm. in development uh, for a long, long time, it feels like. Ironically. (laughs) This one has not moved quickly. But- it seems to be moving. Uh, so we know that uh, Andy Muschietti, the director of the uh, both chapters of it, is on board as director of this movie. And this week came the news that Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton, is in talks to play Bruce Wayne, and maybe the Batman in this movie.
2: What the actual f?
1: DC is drunk and I love it.
2: <laughs> yeah, so do I. Uh, this is now this is a this is a multiversey typey storyline, isn't yes. it? Like in in the same vein as their Infinite Earths Arrowverse. Well, the stuff. idea is so that this is going to be
0: based, I think, on Flashpoint, yeah. in which uh, he goes back in time and, uh, and creates a a rift in time, which then splinters the, the he, multiverse. Yeah, he basically
1: he tries to save his mother's life. So of course, you know, his father was accused of having killed his mother, which threw his whole life into disrepair. So he goes back to try and stop that from happening, and accidentally basically undoes the DC universe, and then has to try and put that back.
0: Yeah, Teen Titans uh, go to the movies. It feels like a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, Teen Titans,
1: yeah, basically, Teen Titans. Teen
0: Titans go to the movies did this in about five minutes. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> with with three world class jokes along the way <laughs>
1: Crime Alley. I don't know. Yes, <laughs>
0: the thumbs up.
1: Still the thumbs up
0: after after Robin throws Bruce Wayne's parents into Crime Alley so they could get <laughs> shot dead, and then and then gives his gives Mrs. Wayne the pearl necklace as well. Uh, but then he turns around to a young orphaned, freshly orphaned Bruce Wayne and does a big grin and thumbs up. Is just absolute gold.
1: And, and the six pack.
5: <laughs> <crackle nest. laughs>
0: If you haven't seen Teen Titans go to the movies, see it. It's incredible. Uh, James, have is you it seen though? it? Yes, I've seen it. It is wildly unfunny. Well, there you go. That oh is. There's no greater recommendation. <laughs> 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 anyway, we, again, we're bearing the lead. Um, Michael Keaton might play Batman again. Um, and we don't know how long for. We don't. Uh, you know. But I'm excited about this, not least because then this opens the idea of a proper adaptation of The Dark Knight Returns with Michael Keaton,
1: <laughs> finally
0: at the kind of right age to play Bruce Wayne in that, I'd be absolutely You're all dreaming. over
1: that. You're a dreaming man. I would um, clamber on top of that. But I think I do think it's um, just a hilariously brilliant idea, and I am absolutely all for it. And, you know, it's not that long ago that DC was sort of saying, you know, we're never going to have two versions of Batman at once. And now they could have like 16, I think, by my last count. So, you know, because they've got the Pattinson and Batman happening. They've got this. I think there's still rumors about Ben Fleck. I just. They've
2: got the Batman. They now have a
1: Batman. Yeah. So mm. it's too many Spider-Man all over again.
0: Well, next year alone, we would have. I mean, obviously, the Snyder Cut isn't canon, but we, in next year, we could have. Is Has the Batman been moved back a year? So then we'd have it's the so Affleck Batman in early 2021. And then I presume that they've moved the Batman back to 2022. But we'd have two different Batmen. In that alone, if we have the Flash movie and the Matt Reeves Batman also, listen, mm-hmm. I'm all for this. I'm all for this kind of kind of thing. I, I saw a news story that said they're going to use this, potentially the idea of Michael Keaton coming back to this role, um, as a way to introduce audiences to the multiverse, the, the concept of the multiverse. And I was like, well, have audiences... Just show him Spider-Man: Far From Home or Mm -hmm. um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That might give him a little little pointer. Um, But yeah, into the Spider-Verse or into the Spider-Verse. You know, I realize those are different companies, but um, but you know, I think a lot of uh, audiences would just go, "Oh, yeah, it's the same thing." Um, Anyway, Michael Keaton playing Batman again is huge because obviously Mm -hmm. he he played Batman twice uh, Mm -hmm. in 1999's and 1992's Batman Returns. Then he hung up the cow. (laughs) <laughs> he hung up the cowl uh, for Batman Forever. Uh, directed course by Joel Schumacher. We'll 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 talk about Joel Schumacher mm-hmm, yeah. in due course. And um, you know, and as far as I can see, had no interest in coming back to this role ever again. Uh, so I think this is pretty pretty monumental. I'm totally on board with this with this idea. I think Michael Keaton is a phenomenal Bruce Wayne, uh, good Batman as well, and I'd love to see this happen. really, really, really would. Um, all right. So anything else you want to talk about now that we've spent 25 minutes on that one new story?
1: <laughs> well, that's a big one. That's a really big one, I think. Um, I, I would personally also <laughs> like to talk about Foundation, um, which is the adaptation of the Isaac Asimov um, yes series some of the Isaac Asimov books. It looks- Helen,
2: please could you Foundation explain to us?: Yes, I can. Now, I saw this, this, this trailer. I thought it was wonderful, mm. but I've never read the book. Oh books. my
1: goodness. Oh, well. Wow. Okay, so Foundation started with a very readable, very small book, literally called Foundation. It all goes off after that, and they get big and bi- bigger and bigger and bigger. But the idea is simply this: There is a galactic empire that spans thousands of planets, trillions of people. Um, It has lasted for thousands of years. But there is a guy called Harry Seldon who appears to be played here by Jared Harris. And uh, Harry Seldon has invented a new form of maths, which is called psychohistory. So maybe it's a new form of history. It kind of exists in the real world. There is a computer program that predicted the Arab Spring. So there's, anyway, there are elements of psychohistory in our own existence as well. But the idea of psychohistory is that by looking at massive, sweeping views of human reality, right, looking at all the news, reading all the newspapers all over the world every day, analysing everything... You can predict what's going to happen tomorrow. You can't predict what Isn't one. It's a
2: plot of equilibrium. It
1: kind of thing. <laughs> you can't predict what one person. It's not. It's not equilibrium at all. You can't predict it's what not one person that. is going to do, but you can predict what society as a whole is going to do. Right, and this is all obviously destabilizing in itself, but it's particularly destabilizing because Harry Seldon comes to essentially the Emperor and says, "Look, bad news. Civilization's about to." Burn up like it's just about to collapse. Everything is going to collapse, and it's going to stay collapsed for like a hundred thousand years until we get back on our feet. But I have a plan, and I can reduce that period to like five thousand years with psychohistory if we just do certain things at certain times in certain places. So he sets up this obscure planet, which they call Foundation. And foundation is basically going to protect civilization so that it can reseed the galaxy in a much shorter spirit, period of time.
2: Huh? <sighs> what? Blowing Chris's mind. Foundation to Foundation. That's a Foundation to Foundation. Uh, but the trailer looks amazing. Yeah, it looks
1: it's proper sci-fi looking. It's like crazy mm. planets with like giant rings around and people going around in spaceships <laughs> and flying cars. It's it couldn't be more sci-fi looking. It has Lee Pace in it. I mean, he's clearly not it real. Does. It's amazing. So, uh, it is very exciting. Uh, I I think that this show seems to be based on Prelude to Foundation and Foundation itself. But I look forward to finding out if that's true. I think we predicted that back when this was first discussed.
2: Using (laughs) psychohistory. Using psychohistory,
1: exactly. Because Braille's Foundation is basically where Harry Seldon develops this whole theory by studying the imperial planet itself, by the Coruscant, if you will, of the empire
2: i very much look forward to seeing uh, jared harris bust out some gun cutter in this particular show i think it's gonna be great no i think this is brilliant i'm i'm a, as anyone who listens to the pilot tv podcast will know that i'm a huge fan of apple tv plus the the least used of the streaming the services one. The i am the one uh, because i like what they let their their creatives do they let them do incredibly bold ambitious stuff um i mean just look at just look at what Stephen i did with c i mean it's incredible But yeah, this looks great, and I think this is the perfect place for it to air, because I don't believe it will be constrained in any way. I think it will be absolutely (laughs) batshit mental, and I completely celebrate that. This doesn't air until next year, I believe. Yeah, I believe so. But I'm counting down the days... Until It's going to be proper. This. I
1: would genuinely recommend people read Prelude to Foundation and Foundation, both of which are short short novels. All of the female characters are dreadful because Isaac Asimov couldn't write a woman to save his life, um, as with many mid-century sci-fi giants. Um, but apart from that, if you control for that mentally, then, uh, the, then the rest of it's very, very good.
0: Isn't it meant to be unfilmable?
1: It's... That's why I think there's quite a lot of prelude to Foundation in in this, because I think that's the most uh, filmable-y bit. Um, Because otherwise, you do have this 5,000-year time span where you're trying to follow the history – I'm using the word rightly – the history of the Planet Foundation as it deals with various crises – Uh, Mm. through its kind of existence Um, Mm. and then you get into the foundation and empire stuff where they're trying to kind of rebuild civilization across the wider galaxy which is obviously pretty complicated but there are a few character archetypes at least who go through the whole thing so you get people's grandchildren and great-grandchildren and stuff like that.
0: Sounds cool. Sounds Mm. very, very cool. I I shall buy the books. I've never read the books
2: so I will buy these uh once payday swings around Uh (laughs) i noticed joe kaczynski is doing a twister reboot Mm. which strikes me as a slightly odd thing to do that film doesn't strike me as screaming out in you know screaming out for rebootage
1: yeah i liked twister i had a lot of fun with that the cow was certainly a highlight but i just quite enjoyed that movie um i'm all here for a twister reboot yeah
2: philip seymour hoffman helen hunt bill paxton the immortal bill paxton um yeah, yeah. Carrie
1: Elwis as well as a bonus as a baddie. Oh my yeah. god, yeah. yeah, good point. Um, I, I met a guy um once who had been in a sort of multi-story car park when a tornado hit outside. And so he was literally standing sort of in the open air at a height watching a tornado sort of go past him. So there you go. That's a free image for Joe Kaczynski if he wants mm-hmm. it. Um, oh, did, but
0: did anything happen to him? Or was no, he, was he like... fine,
1: but okay. he had to hold on quite tight, I think. Uh, but he, he survived okay. But I mean, just watching that movie, you're like, well, obviously no one ever survives um, because they're so destructive. Yeah, which I think people sometimes do.
0: I thought it was awful, Twister. So maybe I need to re- really? revisit it. Yeah, I thought it was
2: absolutely My, my absolutely memory of it. Is that it was one of kind of the early CG spectacle mm. films? You know, yeah. that you had to go and see it because of the spectacle. But it had no story no. and no characters.
1: Oh, come now, Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. Who wasn't rooting for their romance? Well, yeah, you, I mean, clear- yeah, clearly <laughs> I wasn't.
0: Um, I was rooting for the Twister to to scoop them up and deposit them in Kansas. That's what in I wanted Western. to happen. But um, but hey ho, maybe yeah. that is just me. And then we're going to round off the, the news section with two very very sad bits of news. We lost mm. two um, we lost two incredible people uh, last week. Uh, first Sir Ian Holm. Star of Alien and the Lord of the Rings movies and Time Bandits and all sorts of of great films, passed away at the age of 88, ripe old innings, as they say. Mm. And then Joel Schumacher, the director of the aforementioned Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Falling Down, The Lost Boys, and many, many more died as well after a battle with cancer at the age of 80. Um, And both will be much missed, I would say. Mm.
1: Yeah very much so. Um I feel like Ian Holm could kind of do anything. You know, he he didn't start acting until he was sort of middle-aged because he was on stage and, and very much in demand and then had a sort of life-changing moment of stage fright that just left him uncomfortable working on stage and and turned to the screen and and really we're so lucky that he did uh, in a way, you know. So from Alien from Alien on, I don't think anyone ever went as quickly from you know cuddly and supportive to terrifying as he did. You see it in Alien, <laughs> you see it in The Lord of the Rings, actually, uh, in the moments where Bilbo is sort of taken over by the ring. Um, he he just played so many shades and so many different notes to each character that he did. Um, and he was, I think he was extraordinary. He's great in Chariots of Fire. I don't know if people have seen that these days. If you haven't seen The Sweet Hereafter, that was his first leading role in his 60s and it's an incredible performance and definitely worth checking out but mm-hmm. um but yeah he, he will be much missed it just felt like he'd be around forever somehow he was just one of those people who you know he always seemed kind of older since i've seen him but at the same time you didn't think he was ever going to go anywhere so that was a bit of a shock
0: yeah i think he'd been in ill health for some time hadn't he? Mm. his his credits had, d- had dwindled his last appearance was as old bilbo in the battle yeah. of the five armies in the, the last hobbit film um but yeah, he was just he was just a wonderful, warm, a funkier presence. Uh, but he had such complexity about him as well. So he could he could play badens uh, mm-hmm. as easily as he could play goodens, but he was always someone that you trusted, and maybe that let played into this idea that he could play he could play bados. Yeah. That he could, you know, and then all of a sudden watch out. He's gone psychopathic and there's there's milk flying around everywhere and uh <laughs> yeah, but he he was great. Absolutely fantastic.
1: Yeah and and Schumacher as well you know talk about you know someone who lived large again didn't start <laughs> um directing films i think until he was about 40 um he'd been a costume designer production designer screenwriter um but he didn't start directing until he was 40 and then you know Tried, mm-hmm. I think, it feels like every genre, certainly pretty close to every genre, you know. If you can go from the Lost Boys to Falling Down to a Time to Kill, not in this order, uh, to two Batman films, you know, it, mm-hmm. Flawless. I mean, these are not phantom of the frickin' opera, you know. He didn't kind of he didn't follow a prescribed route uh, through his career um probably because he was apparently too busy shagging people judging yeah, by well, those exactly. interviews he gave a few years ago <laughs> Ten thousand
2: people man that's that's In a i row. mean frankly yeah exactly <laughs> uh that's that's a that's a lot of that's a lot of fucking uh, yeah like how do you have time to do anything when you're when you're uh, doing exactly he it's a miracle he made so many films quite frankly with mm. uh with that on his play but uh, lost boy is one of my one of my all-time mm. faves love that there's a brilliant piece up on the Empire website at the moment, which uh, comes from one of the, the issues we did earlier this year, which is kind of a behind the scenes sort of look at uh, retrospective on the making of Lost Boys, including either Josh Schumacher's last interview, or certainly one of his last interviews. Uh, so that's definitely worth reading if
3: you get a chance. And he's a he's a fascinating guy because he came in for an awful lot of stick for a lot of his movies. I mean, the Batman films were reviled, but in their own way, successful, um, and and people seem to really turn him into a figure of fun. They love to hate him an awful lot. But one of his incredible strengths was he had a great eye for talent. You know, mm-hmm. you've got people like Matthew McConaughey now coming forward saying, I really wouldn't have a film career were it not for Joel Schumacher taking mm-hmm. a chance on me, fighting for me for the studio. You look at some, something like St. Elmo's Fire. And now obviously, you know, it's the casting team as well, but he really did have an eye for people who would break out and become big stars. He knew Colin what Farrell he was looking as for. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Tigerland and Phone Booth.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: Both very, very, very sad losses indeed. Joel Schumacher and Sir Ian Home, who both passed away this week. Okay, time now for our second and final guest this week. Maxine Peake has long been blazing a trail on the small screen, and recently she's been turning to her attention to the big as well. Well, she would be if... Cines were open, because right now the big screen and the small screen are one. Uh, but this week she is incredible, as the title character in Fanny Lie delivered a tale of a woman's awakening of all kinds, pretty much, in 1657 England. Terry White, our beloved leader, had a chat with her over Squadcast, and full disclosure guys, I fucked things up whilst recording this, so you are going to join proceedings a few minutes into their chat. We're all in this new newness together, though, and now and again, things like this are going to happen, and I beg your forgiveness, especially when you have an idiot like me in charge. But the rest of this interview is really fun and engaging, and I hope that you will enjoy it. The bits that I haven't mangled, anyway. Maxine Peake, enjoy.
5: And do you think there's a wider resonance, particularly at the moment, you know, obviously that was 17th century post-Civil War time about challenging the status quo, um, And, you know, there's obviously so much going on at the moment with with people challenging the way things have been for decades and generations.
6: Yeah, no, definitely. And that's again, that period of history has always been one of my favourite periods of, of sort of English history because it was really it was the people's uprising. You know, and again, what we taught at school and this is what's happening now, isn't it? We're not taught about our, you know, the colonial past, the evils of, you know, our colonial, you know, in schools, our colonial past and and what, you know, what we as a country did and and the, you know, the devastation we caused. And again, with English a white, it was roundheads and cavaliers. It was only through I had sort of an outside political influence that, you know, I was taught about the ranters and the diggers and the levellers, you know, and, the, and this was about a people's revolution. This was about, you know, a new progressive way forward. You know, the, 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 the acorn of socialism, you know, the mm-hmm. diggers, you know, Jared Wynne Stanley came from Wigan, which is just up the road and he celebrated sort of every year. Now they have a diggers festival, but, you know, he sort of invented, you know, sort of, you know, it was like green communism. He was a, one of the first sort of, um, you know, environmentalists as well. You know, it was about the earth and the treasury of the earth and the earth is for everybody and about, you know, anti-greed. And, so, it's yeah, it's really interesting. And we feel, you know, there's something bubbling now, isn't there? It's a really, mm. I think, exciting time. It's, a, you know, unfortunate of tragedy, but something has got to give. And I think we're at that point, aren't we? globally that yeah. feels that something's something's got to give and you know hopefully there will be you know that time christopher hill who wrote extensively about that period of history his book famous book on that period called the world turns upside down and it feels at the moment that's what we need you know the world's flipped on its hopefully flipped on its access because we can't continue like this no you know and and you know humanity the way you know Humanity, you know, is behaving and to, you know, each other and to the world, you know. Mm-hmm. So,
5: you're a socialist, and how much does your politics, both your politics and your personal passions, kind of inform the roles you do take?
6: Yeah, a lot. I mean, I wouldn't, I suppose, I am a great believer in everything's political. Mm. <laughs> With, Differing sizes of peas, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but uh yeah, I do. I mean, that again, what drew me to fanny lie was straight away, it was like my agent rung and said, Oh, you've been offered this, you know, the script's coming and it's a part and it's the English Civil War. And straight away I was like, oh, that was the first interest, because that's something that that you know excites me. It was like brilliant. But also, you know, it's about the character within that piece and what is their journey. But I don't necessarily have to play. The political person or the political what would I would class as the political good guy or good good girl or good woman you know it's it's about the story mm. and then sometimes you just read something and know oh, this is just a fantastic piece of entertainment yeah
5: you know
6: it's about story it's about storytelling first and foremost attach yourself to a good story you know that you feel telling the right story or it's telling you know a good version of a story
5: and I suppose. If there is another theme, given, you know, what you're saying about storytelling, but also there's probably a theme of extraordinary women or often extraordinary ordinary women, if you see what I mean, whether it's Anne Lister or, you know, Sarah Robotham in three girls, is that are those still things that you're drawn to to be able to show these extraordinary, but also in many respects ordinary women? Yeah,
6: because I think we're all is that isn't it? I remember Years ago, when I wrote a, a play about Beryl Burton, and it was that that phrase, you know, ordinary room in extraordinary lives. I mean, what is ordinary? We've all mm. got, again, going back to stories, we've all got a story to tell. You know, all of us, it's fascin- everyone's story's fascinating, everyone's story is fascinating, I think. You know, you can find, yeah, nubs in anybody. Some people got on oh, really boring, nothing's really happened to me. And then you sit down and, it, yeah, I can say, yeah. well, I beg to differ, actually. But yeah, there's something about, you know, there aren't enough female stories out there. Still, there's a deficit, you know what I mean, about the female experience, the global female experience, you Mm. know, not just, you know, a privileged Western or Mm. a privileged white experience, you know, and I still think, you know, we need to tackle that. But it's not just about, you know, not just about people who, you know, achieved greatness. Mm. You can achieve greatness in very small ways. To me, it's about people who made a change, whatever that be, whether it makes them famous or not, or mm. just... And I think we need a little bit more of that, a bit of encouragement that, you know, we're all capable capable of making, of making a change, you know, if we come together. But as well, I'm just really selfish. I just want to play good parts. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want to play good parts. I want to play parts that, that fascinate me and that I think yeah. stretch me and I find difficult and... Intriguing and complex, you know. So, yeah. First and foremost, as a, as a, you know, as a actor at heart, it's all selfish motivation.
5: <laughs> you know, pure narcissism. Um, but you are also a writer, you know, for radio and stage, and you've done shorts. Is that motivated by what you were just talking about, which is the lack of stories you really wanted to
6: see? Yeah, because I remember it all stems years and years ago. I was sat with like. Five actor friends having a. We were up near Good Street, near uh, Good Street Station. We we're all having a cup of coffee in this little cafe and mourning about the part, all of us having a moan, The scripts have been sent, you know, and it was like, oh, God, it's a wife of somebody or the mother of somebody, or, you know what I mean? It was like stood on the doorstep with your arms folded, saying, He's not here. He's never been here, you know, please, to the police. She's and so- you
5: both <laughs> <him>. <laughs> yeah.
6: And just getting a bit, you know, going, yeah, just feeling slightly. Slightly depressed by maybe what the future had to hold as we got older. Mm. And I said, we've got to do something. And I remember going, no, well, let's let's do something. Let's, you know, let's start a collective. Let's make our own stuff. And that's hard and you need the money, you know. But yeah. I kept thinking about it, you know. Well, the only way you can make a change is by is rolling your sleeves up, basically. You know, you can moan and moan about it, but you've got to put your money where your mouth is. So that's when... I then decided, and I, and I you know, was working on a radio play at the time with this uh, uh, the brilliant uh, producer, David, it's called Justine Potter. Mm. I was doing this radio series called Craven, written by the amazing Amelia, Amelia Bulmore. And, and she said, oh, you know, we were chatting. I said, I've, I've got this idea Beryl Burton.' she was this cyclist from Leeds. I'd love to play, can somebody write it? And she said, you should write it. And I said, well, my partner said that. But, you know, I'm a bit like actors who think they can write. We're, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure whether I can. And she said, well, you should, because I'm, I'm, if you don't do it, then I'm not interested. So I I did it, you know, and I was like, I don't know where to start. I'm not a writer. But I thought, well, you've mourned tough, been mourning about it. Now you've got to f- go through the pain, you know. <laughs> so I, I did it out of going, well, if I don't tell this story, who is? And yeah. it might not be the best, you know, the best told story. It might not be the best script in the world, but it's getting out there. And then I got mm. sort of a bit of a sort of, you Know, got a taste for it then because there's other stories I was thinking oh, I'd love to write about that. i you know, ideally I'd just love to sit in a room and say to some really brilliant really writer, Can you just write me? <laughs> but that's not going to happen, you know. So I have to, it was out like of necessity, else then things go by, or somebody else tells that story, then I'd be brokenhearted, you know. Because
5: mm. I suppose there's stories about women, but then there's also stories about the North and stories about working class culture and families. All of which your work addresses. How important is the North to you, kind of creatively?
6: Well, it's it's important because it's it's where I'm from, and and I do feel the years of people, you know, the North side, North South divide, and you know the prejudice that i you know, I feel, and I think a lot of friends felt about being northern. And the attitudes people had to you and people expected, you know, what they expected mm-hmm. your educational abilities to be and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I just felt, and I think doing the research, it just happened to be a lot of the women I ended up writing about were just from, I mean, actually, shamefully, all over the other side of the, the Pennines. I mean, everyone mm-hmm. i seem to have written about is from Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, which is a bit of a trait. I'm a bit of a traitor to my own oh, that is. county. Oh, betrayal. But, but it was just the women I seemed to to find, you know, that I... But I do, I mean, I'm northern. I can't get away from that. I could get away from that. I could change my accent if I really wanted to. And it's not like I'm banging the drum going. I'm so proud I'm from the north. It's just where I'm from and, mm. and the stories that I can I relate to and tap into. And I I think there's still a view of the north that is not correct and still a bit tainted you know mm. by old-fashioned views but you know there's there is you know there's worse things happening in the world you know but it's mm. you know if you can try and address and one thing you start is from your own stories what stories can you you know and, and what experience do you have and try and address that if you can't mm. if, you, if you're fortunate enough to be given that platform which I was very fortunate you know I understand that
5: and I think there's still, you know, a, a, a kind of role that is often offered to work, um, northern working class actors, both male and female. Presumably, you had to make some pretty deft career choices to avoid those kind of stereotypes that are often behind those offers you're being made behind the characters.
6: Definitely, and I think there is a difference between the male and female roles. I think I, you know, I remember even. Witnessing before I'd got into the business as a drama school that working class men were looked at as sort of more poetic and deep and intense, you know what I mean, and working class women were just a bit common, mm. you know. Well, what you know that we we you know there was the working class hero, there was the John Lennon, there was the you know so people, you know. I went out with a guy at drama school who's from Liverpool, and he had a very different. Taste. <laughs> we used yeah. to row all the time about. <laughs> You know, I go, why do they think that about you? And, you know, I mean, he did, we used to walk around with his donkey jacket on and a coffee <laughs> nab of coffee in his pocket. And I used to go, if I did that, nobody'd take me seriously. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So I think there's, but it's there's layers upon layers. You know what I mean? It's, and it's not, you know, and then you look, and maybe I'm not the person to speak about this, but, you know, I was talking to, my best friend Carla Henry and Carla's heritage is Jamaican Irish. And she says, and then on top of being Northern, there's being of colour and being Northern. She said yeah. that brings a whole different world into it. She said, you, you know, and I think was the sort of, yeah, I just, so it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's really intrinsic in our, in our society. I will look at people from regions and what we, you know, the lack of knowledge of history you know and people look at the north and what they expect people to be and actually we have a huge history of of, of you know progressive politics and you know um you know great strides in science and industry but with you know people still look at at the north as the you know with a poor relation mm. you know we're a bit common and we're a bit stupid and we're a bit funny and and I still think there's that there's still a bit of a battle, you know. Yeah. But, yeah.
5: but do you think that's why something like Shameless was actually brilliant? Because it challenged a lot of that, right? Because it reminded people that there's loads of humour in working-class families and lives. Like, humour's a massive part of that
6: existence. Exactly, and that's one of my bugbears. is a lot of these dramas set up north, oh, are so miserable. No <laughs> oh, wonder people think it, say it's grim up north. <laughs> You know, and I think most northern, you know, that's one of our survival techniques. I think, and it's not just northerners, you know what I mean? I think it's, but is we can laugh at ourselves, you know, and we can laugh, we can, we have a, we share a sense of humor that gets people seem to laugh at the, in the darkest, you know, darkest Mm -hmm. situations, because it is a survival technique. But I don't, and especially women, that's my again, bugbear is, you know, dramas female dramas there's not a lot of you know where's the humor
1: mm.
6: where's the you know most women I know are hilarious if I get together with a group of my female friends I mean we probably spend about you know three quarters of the meeting laughing our heads off usually at somebody's expense usually <laughs> but, uh, but I just think yeah it's it's showing life as it is it it's you know and it's diversity, and it's complex, as it's, you know, multifaceted existence that we all have. And sometimes we write that out, don't we? I mean, people write stereotypes. There's lots of stereotypes on, on you know, I think, in scripts, in, you know, still issues with that.
5: Yeah. And one last question. Um, you recorded, while in lockdown, I believe, the uh, Alan Bennett's Talking Heads you did an episode, and I was going to ask if it was weird, but it's a monologue, right? So I suppose in some ways it actually works with this medium and with
6: lockdown. Yeah, well, we filmed it on the EastEnders set. So I was in Ronnie's ki- Ronnie's stairs and Ronnie's kitchen. People kept telling me that's where I, I was. <laughs> um, um, and I did take a picture of, of Natalie Cassidy's dressing room door. Oh, I got very excited because it oh, had a brass in, so I took her. Sonia, I know, Sonia, she's brilliant. So, uh, so we, we, I had to drive. You know, I drove down to um, Elstree, and uh, one night, and we, I filmed. But I did. I rehearsed with Sir Frankham, who I normally work within the theatre. The Royal Exchange. It's sort of first television directing, sort of of television directing debut, and we did it over Facetime. Mm. Which not, I really miss being in a rehearsal room (laughs) and acting to a little, you know, dot on the. Mm. It's, it was hard was when you were, but obviously once you got on set it was a, a sort of just a more a muted sort of smaller the crew was a lot smaller it was very quiet very relaxed very calm you know it was It was, It was. was strange and it was great and it was brilliant it was such a privileged feel to, to, to do and you know Alan Bennett you know is such a fan and obviously nerve wracking because you know, you know I'm always treading in you know, the shoes of Patricia Routledge, which, you know, those, those are these big shoes to fill. <laughs> you know, So, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, but I was, I'm hoping it won't be, uh, you know, that's not the way forward now. No. I want, I miss, you know, I, I miss the collaboration. I miss being in a room with with Pete, you know, as we all do, as we're all going through this, this period in time, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's been, you know, I know it's tough for a lot of people. They're very tough, but yeah. But it was great to be able to do something and, and do something new that was to be broadcast. Mm. Oh yeah.
5: Thank you, Maxine.
6: Thanks, Terry.
0: Okay, so that was Maxine Peak, and now it's time for the reviews section of the show, and let's start with the aforementioned Maxine Peak
2: and Fanny Lai delivered Jimbo. Well. This whole film begins with the title card: Shropshire, 1657, and I think that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about this. So this is sort of post the execution of Charles the First, Helen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, when Oliver Cromwell kind of took over England and imposed his Puritanical rule, where everyone was a bit strict. This particular story takes place in a small sort of rural farmhouse where um, where Charles Dance lives with his wife Maxine Peak and their young son. He's again a bit strict, very into the gods and wearing of the puritanical attire and the hitting people with a willow switch when they do things sinfully. Uh, So he's not a very nice man until they two people turn up at the farmhouse looking for shelter. Uh, And these two people, of course, played by Freddie Fox and Tanya Reynolds, who people may know from Sex Education, in which he is excellent. Uh, And they ingratiate themselves with their hosts and eventually it comes out that they are from a shall we say non-puritanical branch of christianity one that would eventually turn into into the quakers uh and they preach a very different idea of what they think jesus wants from people uh, and have you know controversial ideas like feminism and equality and sexual liberation um Lots more happens in this, but essentially it is the awakening of Maxine Peake's character, uh, the titular Fanny Lie and how she has her eyes open to concepts such as equality and women, you know, having rights and not being property and all such lovely things like that. Um and it's about religious freedom and personal freedom. But I think, you know, this film is It's an interesting one. Like a lot has been made of the realism of this film. Like they made a point like the soundtrack is played with instruments that were from the era, Mm. the set, the particular farms, it's made using techniques that were available at the time. So they've gone really big on authenticity. This does not unfortunately stretch to the actor's dentistry. Freddie Fox's teeth are so bright as to be almost blinding. But other than that, I think it has a real sort of uh, it has a real sort of verisimilitude to it. Uh, but the standout here is Maxine Peake. So her performance, mm. in this is fantastic. I think she's great. Uh, and the sort of the the sort of internal transformation she goes through. You know, after being this abused, downtrodden wife, to being this incredibly silly, showing mean, incredible inner strength, but having her eyes opened and this kind of wonder that there may be a better life for her, a different life than the one that you know her husband, uh, the you know the government, and God. Have imposed on her up until that point but uh, but she's really good in this and as i say i'm a big fan of tanya reynolds work i love her in sex mm. education and she was really good in this as well but uh, yeah all about performances this is not the fastest paced film in the world uh it's not even the most eventful film in the world but uh there is uh an engorged penis at one point so if you were bored <laughs> that will almost certainly bring you right back into focus uh so keep an eye out
1: yeah i think i think i agree with most of that i think it's very performance driven and i think the performances are great. I mean. To an extent, Charles Dance is becoming a little bit typecast as scary older <laughs> man, um, yeah. and he is very much scary older man here. But there are there are shades to this character that I did not necessarily see coming at the at the beginning, so I appreciated those. Um, it was it was odd for me. I didn't always understand or appreciate the thrust of it. I think I felt like there was some sometimes when, you know, you. <clears throat> it didn't feel very religious if that was the main thrust of the story if it was a, a religious and a, a awakening of belief that kind of sometimes got lost in the shuffle a little bit um in, in the more sensationalist stuff um but i thought the look of it was really really uh, good obviously it it had sort of shades of the uh, the witch and things like that we were set around mm. the same time but um i thought that the look of it and the performances and the music actually as you say on the original instruments was fantastic
2: yeah. The religious thing's an interesting point actually because it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's about, you know, the evolution of Christianity. It felt more like portraying religion as it has often been used as a method of control, yeah, whether yeah. it be a class control or gender control, uh, and showing that it doesn't need to be like showing that there's another way, uh, which I thought yes. was an interesting an interesting sort of line in this, but um Yes, Charles Dunst was, was very much Tywin Lannister with Jesus on his side.
1: <laughs> now, there is a scary prospect.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting sort of stew of of genres in its own way. It feels like it's riffing on things like westerns, and there's a certain mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's another genre I should probably mention, but I probably shouldn't mention because it might be a spoiler. Um, and and as you say, it, it's the performances that really really carry this. Obviously, the attention to detail is is very very good, but it's it's Maxim Peake and it's and it's Tanya Reynolds and it's Charles Dance and there's a couple of other people in it who who mostly are there to be the 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 more potent threat of the movie uh but it's 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 really it's really really thoughtfully made um it, there are moments of it, and again, I won't go into it too deeply because I get a spoiler, but they that sort of put me in mind of field in England mm. uh that sort of made me think of that and um yeah it's it it's it's entertaining entertaining for what it is, don't necessarily go in expecting. All action, but expecting characters who do develop a little bit over the time that you're given, and and uh, there are a few moments where you think like, yeah, I kind of saw that coming, but there's a lot of stuff in it that's just probably will take you by surprise, and and I appreciated that.
2: Also, they have excellent hats. There is a lot <laughs> of
3: superb headwear in this film. Also, massive
2: hats. I so if you are say, a milliner, there's mm-hmm. a lot, a lot to offer here. Are
1: they excellent or are they just large? I mean. Helen, I put it to you, they are one and the same.
0: When hats are concerned, big is good. If you love big hats and engorged penises, then this is the movie <laughs> for this you.
2: everything for you. Yes. Everything. Uh, it's almost certainly fake, right? It's fake. It's fake. It's of fake. Of course, it's The fake. hats. I'm almost certain it was a real hat, Chris. So I can't imagine that it was. The penis is real, but the hats are fake. That's the tagline. Um, it's three leads
0: all have surnames that uh, double as verbs. What? (laughs) Peak, dance and fox. And for that reason alone, we're giving Fanny Lie delivered four stars. Good Lord. Take that, you foxy, peaky dancers. Anyway, next up is a comedy and I use that word. Well, we'll see. Uh, It is a Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. And that is about as funny as it gets. Uh, This is Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams Uh, Playing an Icelandic duo uh, who take the Eurovision Song Contest by storm or do lay. Helen.
1: We learn that Will Ferrell's character Lars um, basically saw ABBA win Eurovision soon after being bereaved, after his mother died in childhood, um, and basically became fixated on it. So ever since 1974, do the maths; it's too long to be fixed on Eurovision. Um, uh-huh. He has been obsessed with getting to and winning the Eurovision Song <laughs> Contest with, ideally, his partner, cigarette uh, uh, Rachel McAdams, who is improbably supposed to be around the same age. Anyway, um, they finally get their chance due to an odd twist of fate, uh, let's say, and end up, you know, in the running for a place in Eurovision. But immediately tensions start to sort of pop up between the two of them. And of course, they have their odds cut out as they are the last ranked contestant in terms of chances to win. I mean, there's a lot of plot in this. None of it really matters, um, which would be fine if there were lots of jokes as well. Um, There are not, uh, really. The best thing in this By quite some distance, I have to say, is Dan Stevens as Alexander Lemtov, the Russian favourite to win Eurovision. Um, He's fantastic and is doing a lot with what he's given, even though you sometimes get the impression that there have been some massive rewrites to this movie. There are certain things that are sort of set up and then not knocked down or that appear to be being knocked down, but were never set up in the first place. So you're like, where did that come from? Um, So it feels like one of those films where maybe they've tried to improv the whole thing and mostly failed and hmm. then just kind of stitched the part that they did like together there. Some of the music I thought was actually quite good. If you like Eurovision mm. music, I think some of the songs are very Eurovisiony. You can see them doing well in this context. You, you can absolutely imagine that. Um, yeah. But apart from that, like I think it's going for kind of Mamma Mia camp silliness. I mean, it even has Pierce Brosnan in a role and, uh, and it's not camp enough and not silly enough and i think we discussed this when the film was first being announced we we discussed the fact that it's really hard to make a comedy about the eurovision song contest cuz it's so inherently ridiculous so where do you go that is more ridiculous than a bunch of grannies sitting in front of a fake oven singing a, a singing a pop song like where do you go that's more ridiculous than having milkmaids on the stage in very low cut tops, you know, churning away during your song. There is nowhere that is more ridiculous than these people. Um, so it's very, very hard to make a comedy of this. And indeed, I don't think they've done a massively good job of it. There is a bit, I will say, where a bunch of past Eurovision winners and contestants come in, uh, where one of the good winners of recent years also sings a nice song as they go round. The host city is Edinburgh, which means that the UK yeah. won in a previous year. To this but there's
0: a, there's a specific line one of the interesting things yeah. about this film is that it actually does have a really interesting knowledge and a good knowledge of how the Eurovision oh, yeah. song contest works mm. so will Ferrell is apparently a huge fan of the uh, of Eurovision which is why right. he wanted to make this movie in the first place he co-wrote it as well as stars in it uh, and yet there, there are things that it just gets plain wrong mm-hmm. I mean so there's a big moment there's a big section of the movie where Graham Norton plays himself as commentator which is obviously what we see every year in the UK so that's all right and you know the, yeah. you know do' point 12 point, points nil point all that is in there but there's a line where someone says oh no one ever no one votes for the UK which is absolutely true you know the, the Great Britain has done really really badly over the last few years um uh, in, in the uh, in Eurovision and brexit hasn't <laughs> isn't going to change uh, that that's for sure and yet I know this is a really strange point to pick up on and quibble but it's true so the final is set in Edinburgh and Eurovision Song Contest the, the is held every year in the host city of the country that won it the year before. And so that means that Britain won it the year before, but also it's not hosted by Scottish people, so what's mm-hmm. going on? Yeah. It's all very, it's really very muddled. So uh, unless
1: Scotland has actually declared independence in this reality, which I guess might win but even over then, some viewers. Why but are the hosts not Scottish? Why are the hosts not Scottish? Exactly. It's it's genuinely quite baffling to get that kind of stuff wrong. I mean, apart from anything else, you could have shot in Dublin or filmed it to be shot in Dublin and uh, that would have made perfect sense and would have been an opportunity for lots of jokes about how the Irish always do quite well um, or used to so used to you know hey we've did slightly better than sometimes anyway yeah it's a real missed opportunity
2: this 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 film Like, I mean I didn't watch it obviously because <laughs> I look at it and if there if I was Superman this is my kryptonite this kind of fucking stupid comedy is the kind of stuff that makes me want to hurt people and this would normally be the kind of film where I would think that like Chris would love it and I would want it to ki- want to kill it with fire and yet this mm. kind of comedy mm. which Chris didn't enjoy I was like oh my god this no just see no it's your
0: kryptonite but to me this sort of movie usually Nurtures me in the same mm-hmm, way that the, the, the rays of Earth's yellow sun nurtures kal Yeah. Kal-El. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, this was my kryptonite as well. And I really wanted to like this movie. It has great pedigree. I like a lot of the cast members. I love Will Ferrell. I think Rachel McAdams is phenomenal mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, and one of the most underrated comedic actor- actors working in cinema today. Uh, you know, I still think back to certain line readings she does in Game Night, which are kind of echoed here, but just mm-hmm. don't work quite as yeah. well. But she really gives it her all. But this movie is so weird on so many levels. And it's just it basically fundamentally a comedy has to be funny. And I've seen people that I know and trust say that give this movie good reviews since the embargo went up yesterday. Don't listen to those people. Listen to us. (laughs) I know the comedy is subjective and uh, one person's worst movie ever made might be the the Mm. other person's funniest movie ever made. But listen to us. This movie is dreadful. It's not good. Avoid it.
1: I literally had to put on um, John Mulaney's Kid Gorgeous comedy special after this to remember what laughter felt like. Um, and literally it turned out that I'd, I'd actually stopped halfway through the last time I watched it because I went to bed or something. Yeah. Um, and and literally within seconds of turning it on, I was laughing. So I'm not broken. OK, I still work.
0: You're not the one at fault here.
1: I'm not the one at fault. I can still laugh.
0: The fault lies with the movie itself. It is misjudged and muddled and crucially Not funny. And it is. it reunites David Dobkin, who's the director, with his Wedding Crashers stars Rachel McAdams, as I said, and Will Ferrell. And you think that this is going to be a recipe for at least some sort of Mm freewheeling, improvisational, you know, funny, surreal nonsense. But it's a movie that has no confidence in anything that it does. That bizarre bit with Eurovision winners doing a a fairly serious, straight Mm -hmm. uh, medley… Two camera, comes out of nowhere. Absolutely and like, well, nowhere. What, yeah. What, what movie are you trying to be? And doesn't there, go there anywhere. Are bits about, there are bits about Icelandic culture which feel very, very uh, first base. There are jokes about elves and surreal bits about people being killed in a murder mystery plot that doesn't really go anywhere because the movie forgets about it, you know, every so often. And, you know, great, Great um, comedic actors like Jamie and Natasha Dimitriou are kind of just stranded Mm -hmm. and given nothing to do and no arc. And I think Dan Stevens is really game and tries really, really hard in this, but isn't given anything to do. He should be one of the great comedic actors villains of recent years in this and you know they, can, they don't they even decide really what get to that, that right
1: like they, they change their Absolutely. mind from scene to scene about what what his character is and i think he's he's doing exactly his best in every single one of those scenes but none of them tie together Yeah, bit of a
3: mess. None of them
0: tied together. Blanco, are you on the same page?
3: Yeah, unfortunately, I am. I have to say, in 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 the pantheon of of Will Ferrell films, I've liked Talladega Nights and Anchorman, still wonderful. And this is also a film. Um, I, (laughs) I think I think part of the problem for me was, and you were talking about this a little bit before, with with how they treat Eurovision. Is it feels like they're trying to not take. They're trying to have fun with it, but not completely. have have, make fun of it it Mm. feels like there's some filthy to it and that doesn't really work because it is as you've said inherently ridiculous um i i have to admit on on the positive angle i didn't mind how they play out the little runner about the elves. I thought that was just, that was a little bit that made me lightly chuckle mm. about what happened to it. But generally I sat there just thinking to myself, my goodness, the people involved with this, this should have been, this should have been a laugh riot. And instead it yeah. was a, yeah. it was a, it was a laugh, someone kicking a can slightly against the wall.
0: Yeah, and it's, they should, they should knocked it out of the park. Absolutely. Yeah. And like yeah. five minutes in, I, I, I chuckled twice. About 10 minutes in, I chuckled twice. Mm. And I think that's some of the laughter died. Uh, And it's two hours long. And you have to stress that as well. This is two hours long. It is on Netflix. And honestly, Netflix, it's okay. Every now and again. To give a filmmaker a fucking note. It's okay. It's fine. No one's going to think worse you if you do it. No one's going to say, oh, don't work with Netflix again. They gave me a note. And the note was, make it shorter and funnier. It's okay to do so. Uh, you know, it's not great. I, I came very close to giving this one star, but in the end, I I, I gave it to two because, as I say, it made me chuckle a couple of times, um, but I'd be hard-pressed to recall when.
2: Mm-hmm. One
0: star per laugh. <laughs> one, one star per laugh. There we go. And uh, last but not least this week, we have the return to the director's chair of John Stewart with Irresistible. It is, you'd be surprised to know, a politically themed comedy, uh, but one that reunites... Stewart with his daily show compadre Steve Carell Blanco
3: Yeah um, take it away In in some ways this this suffers a little bit from a similar problem to Eurovision mm. it's people you really like and have done really good work in the past and it just doesn't live up to past glories This is John Stewart back in a narrative this is his second narrative film that he's made after Rosewater from uh, a couple of years ago. And this, you would assume, puts him squarely in his sort of political wheelhouse as the guy who used to host The Daily Show. It's about, uh, it's starts Steve Carell as a guy named Gary Zimmer, who is a democratic strategist. He worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, and we all know how that ended badly, in case you didn't know or in case you don't live in America and you're not living through the hellscape that is anyway I, I'm getting off the point um, so anyway uh, here's Gary Zimmer this Democratic strategist and he is shown a little sort of viral video of a farmer named Jack Hastings out in Wisconsin who looks to him like the perfect candidate at least for a, a local mayoral election he is uh, Jack this Jack Hastings guy um, is um, uh, sort of he's, he's this sort of seems like he would be a Republican type, but he has all these progressive values and these democratic values. He's standing up for immigrant workers. He's standing up for equal rights and healthcare. And so Gary decides, oh, I'm going to try and run this campaign and it'll be a bellwether for how we can help win over the rural heartlands in the coming presidential election. Of course, once he goes there and starts seeing a bit of success with it, the Republicans win wind of it. They send Rose Byrne, who is the uh, his sort of his uh, nemesis, a Republican strategist named Faith Brewster, and it's it's essentially how the two of them manipulate and connive and scheme and and try and and win this election. Uh, unfortunately. It feels like something that should have been out in two thousand sixteen or even before that. It's, yeah, this it's, is about two
1: thousand three, this stuff. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's
3: about oh oh aren't aren't election politics weird? Aren't aren't people aren't people in America and as we now know, everywhere really divided. And and it has things to say about super PACs, uh, you know, political action committees that are supposed to be separate from the candidate, but you always know there are things that are going on between them and it's it's just a lot of sort of easy jokes about that sort of thing and the really overriding feeling I got was I would so much have preferred this to be a documentary that Jon Stewart made or for this to be something along the lines of something he used to do on The Daily Show. I, mm-hmm. I saw somebody comment, I don't know if it was in the magazine's review or if it was in something I saw on, on Twitter saying, you know, someone like John Oliver has taken over doing this kind of stuff with so much more clarity and so much, much more so. comedy value than, than this offers. And it comes from Jon Stewart, who you would have expected so much more from. I just, I just sat there thinking to myself, my goodness, why isn't Jon Stewart making a truly incisive, interesting, funny political film and how has Steve Carell sort of, Steve Carell just isn't very funny in it. He he really isn't. I didn't find him particularly funny in it.
1: I think he's so concerned with being um, like just a a venal Terrible person, and showing that there are terrible people on both sides of this political debate, and people who are more concerned with their own comfort and their own, you know, status and everything else. Um, And that's a valid point to make, absolutely valid. But it's just so distracting. And the fact is, again, it's a pre two thousand sixteen discussion to have because it doesn't help now to say oh look democrats are also a bit shit we know that they're a bit shit we can (laughs) see um the problem is not that they're a bit shit the problem is that the other side have completely cut ties with fact um and that is the, the the essential kind of thing that this film never really deals with the fact that one side is just making shit up and the other side is trying a little bit at least to stick to reality and um, you feel like
2: they might don't you at the beginning yeah. there's there's a hint at it. you see them addressing like a press court and you you're talking about the spin room and you're like okay this is going to be interesting mm-hmm. and that's the last you hear of it yeah
1: it's it's I think it's just a massive missed opportunity, especially with this cast. And and there is a point at the end of the film where you kind of get what he's getting at. And again, it's a good and a valid point. And the the money in American politics is insane and unhealthy mm. and leads to bad, bad outcomes for people in the country. It just does, and people all over the world. It is a bad, bad thing. But we know this. Again, there needs to be more to it, I think, than than this yeah. than this has. And it just felt really unhelpful and really uninspired and um, and, and sometimes just kind of irritating on, on a deep personal yeah. level.
3: It, it, it feels like a lot of the points are buried in a lot of very predictable stuff about, oh, DC people are out of touch. Oh, here's mm-hmm. the small town populace. Everyone knows everybody. Oh, the local coffee shop does this. And it feels like something that, you know, the message feels like something that Bulworth did years ago, Tana88. Mm-hmm. Did yep. years and yep, years maybe. ago, and and even something like something like State and maine you know, which it are, admittedly feels is very Hollywood. Staten, yeah, which is Hollywood people coming as in. Sharp but, as that yeah it's just an
1: incredible film
3: it's it's just so disappointing in an Mm
2: -hmm. era where we have such razor-sharp political satires the disc as you say coming from john stewart is what we get and yes of course it has things to say about how the political system in america is fundamentally broken and how people are you know coastal elites are probably out of touch with heartland america but i you say it's not this is not news and Hmm. i just think to do a political satire frankly of any kind in 2020 is almost mm-hmm. impossible because the reality of it is so beyond absurdity and so utterly depressing that I don't see how you lampoon that with comedy where it's so it's gone so extreme now it's essentially why, why Veep essentially there's nothing there's nothing more we can add to this like no. we can't do this anymore and i think you know it's something like veep does this with a sort of a certain mean spirited vein but does it a lot better mm-hmm. um and this was quite bland like steve grell is you know he's watchable but it wasn't particularly funny i think Mackenzie davis is great and and rose byrne is great but they don't have an awful lot to work but with like, it's they, not hugely funny it's not very they insightful massively
1: waste they have natasha leone they have Tofu yes. grace they have deborah <laughs> messing for minutes. like half a scene <laughs> nothing with really any of them deborah messing's bit is actually quite funny but nothing with any of the rest um yeah. there isn't you know you need to do more i feel like with these ingredients um and i'm, I'm kind of disappointed um I'm just, I'm just disappointed in terms mm. of political satire in this era. In this era just because I said I was watching Kid Gorgeous last night, he gets to the bit with the horse in the hospital. And if you haven't seen Kid Gorgeous, if you haven't seen the bit about the horse in the hospital, is the probably best single take on the Trump administration um, that there has been, and I highly recommend it to each and every one of you. Okay. <laughs> even you, James. Even me. Yes. Thank even you. you.
0: And so say all of us. James Dyer, a man who once went to see Billy Connolly, one of the greatest stand-ups of all time, and left halfway through. <gasps> I literally
2: did. It was painful. Oh God. Uh, I was not amused. I was especially not amused that I'd had to travel to Hammersmith to watch it. But you know, oh my God, I was at one of those gigs. Was they were broken.
1: amazing. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I would have killed to see Billy Connolly. You, uh, you philistines, I lost did kill to get out. <laughs>
0: Uh, so there you go, Irresistible, sadly too resistible. We gave it three stars, three stars then for Irresistible. And that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Uh, you would be delighted to know we've made it to the end of another one. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. Where we'll be joined by a man who has helped all of us in some small way get through this lockdown, whether it's from his bath or his toilet. It is, of course, the great Sam Neill. Do you say? Do you say? Do you say? And making another appearance in the podcast, it is the wonderful Mr. Simon Pegg. I'll be holding a mug saying cool, cool, cool to that one. That is a hell of a lineup. But until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara.
1: Toodaloo. AKA
0: this week on Squadcast Helen, I've got to ask H. Dineel. Oliver. Oliver?
1: Oliver. Uh, it's what? um, it's a foundation reference you wouldn't understand.
0: You wouldn't understand, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Is it <that> a book? <laughs> have you heard of a book, Chris? <laughs> I didn't think so. Uh, it is goodbye from <laughs> Bellend Sebastian.
2: Goodbye.
0: <laughs> Call me the Axeman. Next week he will have learned a fourth chord. I will, literally. One more chord. What's the next one? What
2: comes after D, E, and A? is a great
1: chord.
0: G's a a fucking belter. Mm. G blends so easily into D. Oh, you'll love it. You'll love it. Uh, It is goodbye from full Blanco, James White.
3: Cheerio, folks.
0: Enjoy uh, LA, Blanco. Uh, I hope the weather's nice over there.
3: I will certainly try. I don't think it's quite as boiling hot as it has been, as it apparently is in London right now. But yeah, it's, it's, it's LA. No.
0: 31 degrees over here. 31 degrees. And of course, it is goodbye from me. I am off to spend £166 to get Billy Sane to record a message reminding me to put my bins out. And you know what? It'll work because you should always listen to your friend, Billy Sane. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye bye.